day with the same complicated meditation that we started yesterday, which is sit up, open your eyes, and look around. Two minutes of looking around at people. So now they're more familiar to you because you saw them yesterday. And I'm looking around and seeing people I didn't see yesterday. I'm happy to see you, Ellen. I'm glad you're here. And somebody else wasn't here yesterday but is now here. I, Jane. No, Mary. Mary. You're Mary. And Kelly. There you go. I am very happy that we're all here. This is the kind of thing that I thought about. It is a two-day... Um, Retreat, and it does have, if you look at it in a book, it has four separate components, like you start here and you end here. But that's not really the way it works. It is, we st- um, there, that'll be better. Otherwise it tinkles all the time. Um, it's not we start here and we end here. We start here and we end here, but more woke up. That's really, we talked yesterday a lot about the person who met the Buddha on the trail and said, are you a god? No, I'm not. Are you an ordinary person? No, I'm not. What are you? I'm awake. In the course of today, maybe now, because I just said that, I'll tell you a story that is my favorite all-time story of all stories that I've told ever. So, uh, some people say, oh, not that again, because I tell it all the time. On the other hand, I'm thinking of this two days, which is getting videoed and taped, as kind of an archival, archival record. And on the record, I want to have the story of Mohammed. And who knows the Mohammed story? Oh, that's great. Who doesn't know the Mohammed story? Oh, fantastic. You should know. And you have to tell a Mohammed story after you tell the story of the person who said to the Buddha, are you a god? No, are you a person? No, what are you? I'm awake. Okay. Some years ago, I was at a a conference of teachers at um, a retreat center in... uh, in, um, It matters. uh, Santa Barbara. So in a retreat center in Santa Barbara, and I'd been there for several days. I came uh, on the first day of that gathering, there were 12 or 14 of us, and on the last morning, on the, uh, probably Sunday morning, everybody was getting ready to leave, and the first van load of people left that retreat center from Santa Barbara when it was still before sunrise it was just before sunrise and it was gray, just barely light and um, foggy very foggy and uh, it's a long van ride and I like to sit in the front of airport vans, I just like to they're higher seats, you can see out where you're going so my habit, and I sat out in the front with the van driver and all my colleagues were in the back and we start out, and it's still night, and here we are, shuffling along in this foggy morning. 
And pretty soon, I'm pretty sure all my colleagues in the back are sleeping again because it was way early in the morning. And we're driving along, and I'm not saying very much. And the van driver leans over to me and he says, "Um, do you suppose that your friends in the back will be all right, will mind if I pull over, if I see a place to pull over for coffee, uh, if I pull off the highway and get some coffee, I'm a little sleepy. So I said, no, no, they're not going to mind. They're going to be very happy. Pull off the highway for sure. Do that. In the meantime, I'm awake, you know. So I turned myself in my chair. You know how the front of the van. I turned myself so I'm facing him. So I'm talking to him so I'll be sure he's going to stay awake now. But I couldn't. there wasn't so much conversation to make with him because I had come with the same van driver three or four days before and I'd been the only person in the van so I had ridden up in the front with him and I'd had conversation with him. So I already knew that his name was Mohammed, that he came from India, that he had come two years before with his cousin, that they were going to set up a restaurant in Los Angeles, which they did, but the restaurant failed. That's why he and the cousin are both driving vans now, so they can save up money, so they can bring over their family from India. So I knew all that stuff, so I'm trying to have a conversation, there wasn't much left to say. So I said, so Mohammed, you're a Muslim, right? He said, yeah, that's right. I say, so you pray every day? He said, yes, I do, of course. So how many times a day do you pray? I actually know the answers to these questions, but I'm just trying to have conversations, so he stays up. So he says, so I say, when you pray, what do you say? He says, well, it's not in English. I said, well, I'd like to hear it anyway. Say it however it is that you say it. So he says something for a little while. And I said, that's terrific. So tell me, when people pray in the times of the day that they pray, do they pray long or do they pray short? He said, well, sometimes they pray short and sometimes they pray long. I said, but it doesn't matter if you pray long or short. What matters with the praying is that the prayer should come from your heart. I said, well, how do you know that your prayer is coming from your heart, Muhammad? He said, well, he said, you just look around you. And he waves his hand at the at the uh, at the uh, windshield of the van, which is all foggy. You can't see anything out there, really. Waves his hand, and he said, "Well, you look around you anywhere you are, and you look at all the people, and you realize all of us is like we're thrown into an ocean, and nobody knows how to swim. When you look at that, and you realize that, you pray from your heart." So, I say to him, "Oh, wait a minute." Mohammed, look, there's a Wendy's. You want to drive off here? And he said, no, I don't have to. I'm awake. So I have to tell that story as the second story there. It goes with the story I told you yesterday about the person that same, I told you the same story about someone asked the Buddha, are you a god? Are you a man? What are you? And he said, I'm awake. And I said yesterday, I would have asked another question. Now that you're awake, what do you know that you could tell me that I could know? Since you're awake, what do you know that's different? And I'm thinking that he would have said some variation of everybody out there is having a hard time. Everybody out there does not have an instruction manual for how to do this life and they're having to figure it out by themselves. And 
it's uh, lovely to say that all people are created equal, but they're not actually on any level except they're all equally people. They're all people that like I love that expression yesterday from the woman therapist in in the New York Times who said, "I am a card carrying human being, and therefore I have the same feelings as everybody else that in those moments when we realize that people that person is just like me, that person feels just the way I do, and when we do. When people very dear to us are in some sort of a trouble, our dearest kin, our children, our parents, our, our beloveds that we become family with, when they are afflicted, it pains us because we know them well and we can intuit how they feel. I don't know how many people in my life I have heard talking about some anguish that one or another of their children is having and saying, I would take it, I would have it for them if I could. Maybe you're one of the people who said that in your lifetime. I would have this for them if I could. In the Metta Sutta, which we're going to read right away, it says, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts to do that, we really need to have eyes open. Everybody is not my my DNA kin. Everybody is not um, that kind of close attachment kin. But I think it's because I have close attachments. Everybody does. Whether or not they even had children, but they had parents. They've had friends and teachers and aunts and uncles who love them. And because we love them and feel bad when they hurt and feel bereft when we lose them, it's through that connection that we can intuit that everybody feels just like that. Huh. Maybe one more story and then we'll sit for a little while because it so exactly goes here. This is a book. It's written by a Marin County woman named Meredith May, but she's really the scribe. The two people who are talking and telling her their stories are Zahed Hafling and Naja Aboud. And one of them is... Um, Iraqi, and one of them is Irani. And both of them were fighters, enemy combatants in the 10-year Iran-Iraq war. And in a very miraculous way, in recent times, these both survivors of that war uh, told their stories to Meredith May, who wrote it down in this book. The part of the story I want to read to you happens when uh, one of these two men as a 15 year old uh, medic in the Irani army who has volunteered lied his age, forged his parents permission and gotten to the army, has been trained to be a medic so he hasn't carried a gun at all 
but he's carried a medical bag to make tourniquets and bind up wounds and know how to do that. And he's been in some horrible battles by this point. And at the end of some terrible battle in which many, many people are left dead, he's given the instruction, go into that barn, uh, go into that building. Everybody seems to be dead in there. They shot everybody in there. But there might be somebody alive and maybe they're uh, uh, Irani, maybe they're us. Go and see. So he goes and it's a most horrible vision of carnage and there are all these dead people. And he's looking around and looking around. By nightfall I was ordered to search the bunkers. I was ordered to give medical aid to any wounded Persians I found and a bullet to any Iraqis. I had never killed anyone and I really, really didn't want to. My only weapon was a flashlight, but abandoned guns were strewn everywhere. So I picked up a rifle as I approached the first bunker on trembling legs. I felt my collar to make sure the grenade was still there. There could be groups of Iraqis inside. They were most certainly armed. I crouched at the entrance, turned off my flashlight, and waited for courage. This was suicide, the same as walking in a minefield, but again, I had no choice. Come out, I yelled, lowering my voice to sound like an adult. Nothing happened. My hands shook as I turned on the light. The beam cut across several bodies, strewn sprawled on the dirt floor, collapsed in a pool of blood. These Iraqis had been dead for some time. I stepped out of the bunker and continued my patrol. Up ahead, I saw a dark line of a trench. Safety, I thought. I sprinted towards it as gunshots crackled from all directions. I could just hide in the trench until the gunfire settled. I jumped down into the trench, landing on the top of dead Iraqi soldiers curled in fetal positions. Helmets and ammunition boxes, combat boots were scattered everywhere. I shined my light up and down. I poked some bodies with a rifle, but got no response. Just to be safe, I gathered all their weapons and piled them in the farthest corner. I turned to go, and then I heard a sound a low moan. I whipped back around and the man at the bottom of the pile was looking at me through half-lidded eyes. Instinctively, the medic in me pulled the corpses off him and he gasped when the air rushed back into his lungs. I jumped back and hunched down, ready to spring on him if he tried to attack. But he just lay there, moaning and mumbling something. His tan desert fatigues were soaked red from his chest to his waist and he had an open gash on his forehead and another on his arm. I hoped he would die and that those moans he was making were his last. Then he turned his head and looked directly at me and said something. I don't understand Arabic but I think I caught one word of it, Muslim. It came out like Muzim. I stood and put my finger on the trigger but my shaking hands made it impossible to fix on a point. Then he lifted his hand and weakly 
reached for his shirt pocket. I thought this Arab is going to blow us both up. I dove for his pocket to reach the grenade first, but my fingers touched paper instead, and I pulled out a pocket-sized Koran. I slumped to the ground. Now I was the one gasping with relief. Every soldier I knew carried a Koran into battle for protection, and I guessed all the Iraqis did too. I looked back at the wounded man to make sure he wasn't reaching for anything else. Muslim, Muslim, he moaned. There was something hidden in the book. I suspected money. After watching the other soldiers pillage so many dead bodies, I'd learned that the Koran everyone carried doubled as a wallet. I held it open on my palm, and the pages fluttered back to reveal a photograph tucked inside. I saw a woman with olive skin and dramatic eyebrows holding an infant to her chest. The baby's face was in profile, but he was so young that its skin was still bright red. The woman's dark eyes cast a spell, like she could look straight into my secrets. There was something about her gaze, a sadness that made me want to hold her hand and tell her everything was going to be okay. I knew I was holding his family in my hands. These were the people who loved him, who would die inside if I killed him. She was so beautiful, the kind of wife I would want someday. And it would be wrong to ruin her life, and even more evil to take away a baby's father. This soldier had a life that wasn't here, that wasn't supposed to end with me shooting him in a bunker. Something had brought him to this war that was out of his control, but because why else would he leave such a beautiful family behind? The Iraqi smiled weakly at me, and that's when I noticed that we were the same. We had two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Why was I supposed to hate him? He had never harmed me. I had managed to get this far in the war without killing anyone, and I wasn't going to start now. If I put a bullet in his temple to end his misery, then the guilt would haunt me forever. I could walk away, but letting him suffer was more inhumane than taking his life. Or I could be merciful. That's a stunning story, isn't it? I thought to myself, that particular thing of look at somebody and say, he's just like me. Two eyes, a nose, a mouth, a family. He has a a woman who's beautiful. I'd like a woman who's beautiful like him. I'd like a child like this woman is holding. How can we do that? How can I hurt him? In the end, he makes tourniquets, he gets him to safety, he gets him to a hospital. That person gets expatriated after 10 years of prison to Iraq. And the story goes on and on and has twists and turns. And decades later, in Canada, in some social service agency, They meet each other by complete chance and they become friends and they tell their stories to each other and they tell their story to Meredith May who writes it. And the name of the book is I Who Did Not Die by Meredith May. If the whole world could suddenly wake up and say 
two eyes, a nose, a mouth. Maybe different color face, maybe different shape eyes, maybe different this, different that. But two of them, and one nose and one mouth, and one desire to have kin and have family and survive. We all have it. What will it take to change? I said at the end of yesterday uh, that I, I keep imagining somebody or some bodies, some bodies of respectable people that everybody listens to. Say, let's just invite everybody for dinner. Let's put down the arms. Let's stop doing this. In your book, in your little four-page textbook that I gave you, there's a book, there's a, there's a poem by um, Pablo Neruda. Oh... Fooey. Fooey, fooey. Uh, we don't have to do this now. Anybody here is um, a native Spanish speaker? No. Yes. Not yet. Todavía <laughs> no. In a little while, I am going to, I'm, I'm going to ask one of the monitors. Where's a monitor? Where's a monitor? If you will ask um, Christina or somebody in the office to uh, Google Pablo Neruda, the poem is Aquearse. Uh, the, the poem is um, Aquearse in Spanish. And uh, ask them to print it out. We have it in English, but it's really beautiful in Spanish. And you don't need... You don't need 80 copies, you need one copy. Two, maybe. Anybody would like a copy in Spanish? Who wants? Okay. A dozen copies in Spanish. And then we'll read it. How about, while that's happening, <laughs> uh, in, this, uh, in this time, let's do a contemplative practice together. This is a practice that's especially for the whole rest of all the practices that we'll do today. So we're going to make little lists in our mind. And keep your eyes open if you want to, or closed. Stand up if you get sleepy, because you really have to listen and make the lists. Let your breath come in and out.
And now, for the next little while, let's practice with the words of blessing what we'd like to bless ourselves and our kin and the people we really love with. And yesterday we worked with the words safe. May they all be safe. And the words happy. May they be happy. And the word strong. May they be strong. And the word at ease or easeful. Untroubled, having an easy time in their life, in at ease in their life. Don't have such a good word for it in English, but at ease. Its original word is meant to mean may they be living in adequate in a circumstance that they don't have to worry about themselves. May they not be homeless and without resources. None of us here are in dire situations. So when I think, may I be at ease, I'm grateful for the ease of having not to worry about the keeping myself dressed and warm and comfortably housed and well-fed and with adequate medical care. I don't even so much have to hope for it as I actually enjoy the moment, may I live at ease of knowing that I am and feeling grateful for it. So when I say those words to myself, I try to feel safe in my body. And I try to feel happy in my body. The original word in Pali means body happiness or mind happiness. In Pali, the words are may I be free of danger May I have mind happiness. May I have body happiness. May I live in easy circumstances. And I think about that when I say those words, safe and happy and strong and at ease. So I'll be quiet for a few moments and then we'll start making lists. I'd like you to really work with those four words, safe, happy, strong, ease, over and over and over.
Now continue with those four words, but make them into sentences. May I feel happy. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I feel at ease. And do those once or twice or three times through. May I feel. Now, if you will, think about inviting into the space of your mind maybe a half a dozen people of your very nearest and dearest. If you have more than half a dozen people in your very immediate family, you can have more than that. But imagine you invite in the nearest and dearest people who would be the first on your prayer list in any prayers. And... If you can, if you're a good visualizer, visualize each of them as if your mind is a room and each of them is coming in, kind of gathering in there and standing around you. See what happens in your heart as you're just looking at who you love and care the most, most about. And imagine that you're saying to each of them individually, may you feel safe, may you feel happy, may you feel strong. May you be at ease. May you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. 
may you feel at ease. You go through your family and your closest kin. Will each of us do that? If you've invited one or two or three, go back and do them again and again. If you've invited more, include them in. The mind is as vast as space. Sometimes I imagine that I'm blessing people. I put my hands on their head in my imagery. Sometimes I touch their heart. Sometimes I imagine they're just all standing around me and I am beaming out from my heart like a radio beam, that message to each one. Notice how, with each one, your wishes maybe are a little bit different. They're just the same wishes and the same words. I, I, my usual feeling is if I've been in any way um, put off by anybody, annoyed or set back, something, that in blessing them all of that passes away. And I become much more spacious and tolerant than I am when I think about it. Blessing is really the eradicator of every afflictive thought in the mind. You can do this eyes open or eyes closed. It's your inner mind that's working. Keep all of those people in that close circle around you and invite in some friends or more relatives. Best friends, not so best friends. The people whose names are in the speed dial of your telephone. People who are close in your life. And wish for them collectively and individually. May you feel strong. May you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you feel at ease. limitless room in the mind I invite you to see, see how it feels if it feels different to be blessing the people who are not in the first tier of blessees the next blessings feel different 
really think about that particular thing as you invite in the next group of people to orbit around you and to be in the sphere of your blessings. The next group of people to invite in is the people who you're not so close to, people who you don't think about unless when you meet them somewhere. I always think about my dentist and my dental hygienist and the woman who's the postmaster in my local post office and um, the mail carrier. People who I don't think about except when I have appointments with them or I meet them en route somewhere. And I'm glad to see them and I recognize them. I realize when I call them to mind and I wish them well, pick out which one really appeals to you. The person who cuts your hair, the person who keeps your teeth well, your doctor. And looking at them quite personally, in your mind's eye, wish them very well. May you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. See how you feel. See how they respond when you, in your mind's eye, of course, when you bless them and when you feel the echo of that blessing back in you. You can play with all these groups of people. You can invite them to move around in your mind and meet each other. can wish all of them. May everyone impartially be well, be safe, feel very strong. May everyone feel at ease. And we'll take a minute or two to feel how you feel in the middle of blessing all of those people who are the population of your daily life. Might want to say, may we all feel safe. May we all feel happy. May we all feel strong. May we all live with ease. Feel how that feels to be the center of a circle of well-wishing with all those people in your mind milling around in front of you and behind you, and you radiating goodwill. Last of all for now, bring to mind some people with whom your mind is unsettled. Um, People with whom you're uncomfortable, people with whom 
you have some unreconciled feelings, people who frighten you. You know, in the in the scripture describing this kind of practice, those people are described as enemies. And in recent time, people have decided to call them um, difficult people as a nicer form of speech. But I think that when we're frightened by people, our heart responds viscerally as if it's an enemy. And it's hard to bless back. See what happens if you try to say, may you feel safe too. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. We'll sit for three minutes more. And I invite you to experiment with group A or group B or group C or group D or all the groups together. The same words and the same wishes. And see how your mind and body feel. Three minutes.
What do you think? What does everybody think about if we open the door and get some fresh air? Everybody thinks so? Okay. Okay. What would anybody like to say about their experiment? This is like a lab course, or it's a course with a with a that has um, didactic sessions, and then everybody goes in the lab and uh, experiments and sees how it works out. So Barbara is saying we need. Barbara is saying that the people who came in to her circle, who she had not chosen to be her favorite people, maybe her least favorite people, when they came in with the favorite people, uh, what? Say again. They became beloved. Thank you very much. Who else had that experience or wants to say something else? Okay, here we go. Uh, Hold it right up here like an ice cream cone. Hi. Good. Um, I have, over a long time, tried to do the meadow with difficult people, and I've had some very difficult things happen in my life, and I it, it, it rattles me. It makes me feel um, lots of pain, and so I, I avoid it. This is very perfect that you share that. What's your name? Deb. Deb. So this is very, very important for Deb and for everybody and for me. When I think of somebody, when there's an occasion, I think of somebody and my mind does, ah, because, you know, that, ah, because my nervous system is still frightened of them. Even if they, sometimes even they're not in life anymore. And the nervous system is still frightened of them. When I realize that, that my nervous system is frightened way after something happened, I think to myself, wow, that was really very painful what you had. And what I totally do at that point is I make blessings for myself. May I feel at ease. May I feel okay. May I be healed from this. All things come and go. Maybe this will come and go too. Maybe someday I'll be healed from this. In the meantime, may I feel well, may I feel at ease, and just leave it alone. Really, sometimes people are frightened with the idea I'm going to have to send good wishes to somebody who I can't think that about. You don't. First of all, that I, I, this is not about sending emails. It's about really healing your own heart. And the truth is that your heart hurts about that. So until whenever it doesn't hurt so much. When it doesn't hurt so much, uh, it will make space for them. You won't have to decide to. At some point, you'll notice, uh, I don't react that way anymore. Okay. You won't even have to do any forgiveness, anything. It goes away just by itself. Not through magic, but through wisdom, really. You know, I was really hurt. It's a long time ago. Things happen. Thank you very much for sharing. Who else wants to say their experience? Say your name. Thank you. Linda. Um, I 
had, I, I felt a little overwhelmed in including everyone um, because I tend to be very serious about trying to help people in my life. So this seemed like a large task. Um, that's one thing. But the second thing is there, uh, uh, I have a situation in my life in which uh, uh, there is a closeness with someone that I prefer not to be in the circle and not with me but with someone I really care about and I realized that the gate closed Mm -hmm. and I wasn't willing to Mm -hmm. uh, include Mm -hmm. so I appreciate what you just said um, and I would appreciate any further help in this situation I'm very glad that you brought that up Linda because and and it does have to do with what Deb said. Because it doesn't matter if you don't have a problem with this person, but you're aware of they can't be in my same mind together. It, it this whole thing is for me. Over the course of the thirty years that I've done this particular kind of practice, I went from thinking in the beginning, this is like sending valentines. You know, what's this going to do for me? It's a, you know, what does this mean? To realizing that it's very very deep insight practice. When I notice that my mind is startled about thinking about this with that and the conflict of that, I think, wow, this is a painful thing in me that two people in my life are in this way and in relationship to me and what shall, how shall I be with them? It really, it, it's, it's not all that easy to have an open heart about everybody, even if it's just in your mind. Because it is your mind, and if the mind is troubled about that. So for me, it's an insight unto, oh, this is a thing that's not yet worked out, not yet healed. Don't do anything yet. Just think about it. And think about yourself. Mostly, I think about myself in those kind of situations with having uh, difficulties in my life that still cause me pain that I'd rather not be thinking about. And that sometimes I will think about them, but not now. That I think we learn a fundamental kindness and appropriateness. What's the time for what? By thinking, what's the time for it with me? You know that. Really, I think this is it's um, I, uh, maybe the most important thing I said yesterday is going from um, contention to compassion. Not being annoyed with things that they're not workoutable yet, but compassion for myself that I'm in pain about them, and other people is are. It's uh, sometimes people go on a long retreat, and when they leave the retreat uh, after some period of time, that it's not unusual for people to say, you know, I feel so vulnerable. I've been sitting here for five days or a week or two weeks or a month or two months and day after day my whole life is coming before my eyes and I I really uh, I feel so defenseless I'm really open to the world and been making prayers for well-being for everybody I feel very vulnerable I'm touched by the person next to me who's coughing was annoying me the coughing a week ago and now I feel bad for them that they're still sick we go we become more and more caring people and touched by people they say I'm afraid to go out I'm afraid to go out in the world I'm afraid I've become too vulnerable 
and I've been saying for years and always with I really this touches me very much to think about I think to myself I say to people I don't believe there's such a thing as too vulnerable I am waiting for the world to be too vulnerable I like for the world to suddenly be overwhelmed by what we're doing to each other and and and, and feel bad about it and change if we all became vulnerable We'd stop killing each other or being greedy about the world stuff. We'd share. Just have to look around and say, wow, look what's happening to people. Take a breath in and out. I am interested in what your experience was in that and I want to. I, I do. While we have, uh, we have the Spanish of uh, keeping quiet. So come up here, so you can read from up here, and bring a microphone. From bring a microphone, and tell me your name. Uh, Rosa. Rosa. Thank you. Please come up. Okay. Where were you born, Rosa? Uh, Guatemala City. Guatemala City. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So hold this just like okay. that. Okay, like that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, project the text. There you go. Look at this. We are so IT hip. <laughs> How old were you when you came? Uh, nine months. I was adopted. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Did you, did you in some time meet your mother in Guatemala? Yeah, last month. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. yeah. How old are you now? I'm 17. Wow. So, yeah, that's my mom back there, and we wanted to take a trip before I went off to college. That's so, wonderful. Where are you going to school? Uh, St. Mary's down here. I'm from Chico, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. That's great. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, the, the English is there, or is, it'll be there? Both. Oh, okay. okay. Go. A callarse por Pablo Neruda. Ahora contaremos doce y nos quedamos todos quietas. Por una vez sobre la tierra no hablamos un ningún idioma. Por un segundo detengámonos. Nos fa- no movamos tantos los brazos. Sería un mon- minuto fragante, sin prisa, sin locomotores. Todos estaríamos juntas en un inquietud instantáneo. Los pescadores del mar frío no harían daño a las ballenas y el trabajador de la sal miraría sus manos rotas. Las que preparan guerras verdes, guerras de gas, guerras de fuego, victorias sin sobrevivientes, se pondrían un traje puro y andarían su, son sus hermanas por la sombra sin hacer nada. No se confunda lo que quiero. Con la inacción definitiva, la vida es solo lo que se hace. No quiero nada con la muerte. Si no pudimos ser unánimos, moviendo tantas nuestras vidas, tal vez no hacer nada una vez, tal vez un gran silencio pueda interpretar esta tristeza. Es de no entendernos jamás y amanecernos con la muerte. Tal vez la tierra nos enseñe cuando todo parece muerto. Sí. Bravo. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Rosa. For everything. I was going to say, um, you read along in English and you listened. If you had to say, in not poetic English, in one in one sentence in English, what is Pablo Neruda saying there? You want to try? Anybody? Maybe I should say it. Maybe I shouldn't say it as a question. I'll say it as an answer. When I think about that poem, I think that what Neruda is saying is that really, if we just stop all of us at the same time and look around, really look around, say, "What are we doing to each other?" The fishermen would look at their hurt hands. I think it's the salt miners, the fishermen, those pescadores. And the word, trabajador de la sal, the workers, the salt workers would look at their hurt hands. But all the workers would look at how they work, how they hurt, how they're hurting each other. Everybody who's misusing anything, mostly misusing people, would feel hurt about it and stop doing it. And we'd have a world where people took care of themselves and each other. Just have to stop and look around. I think I said sometime yesterday that Krishnamurti said, uh, you don't really need to meditate. You just need to look around. Did I say that yesterday? I think I did. You just need to look around I think you need to look around and I think you need to meditate a little bit <laughs> because I think that if you really, really look around, you would really be blown away by what we're doing to each other. I looked at the newspaper this morning. You know, I don't watch TV anymore, but I do look at the newspaper. I look at the newspaper and you look at what people are doing in this country, other countries, this country, that country, all over the place, the whole planet. It's very. You need a very strong constitution to read the newspaper. You also read about people who do heroic things and people who do amazing things, helping out other people, and that picks you up a little bit. But I think you need both. I think you need to be able to calm down the mind and wake it up. I said it yesterday in terms of meditation, needing to soothe the mind and keep it awake so we don't fall asleep to what's going on. Once upon a time, I'll tell you this story and then we'll have some moving around. Once upon a time, I was doing quite a lot of um, retreat uh, practice. And sometimes when you do a lot of retreat practice, uh, different kinds of body feelings uh, become quite prominent. You get tearful and shaky and... um, feel energies moving around in your body and um, sometimes they're quite lovely and sublime 
And that was going on for a while. And even when I came off retreat, and then I began to worry about it, I felt a little bit like the sorcerer's apprentice, like something ran around, ran away with my body. And I went to, uh, I went to talk to Chagdud Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan um, teacher who was at the, in the Bay Area at that time. And somebody told me that Chagdud, in the Tibetan tradition, knew a lot about energies. So I could go and talk to him and he'd be able to help me out. So I went to see him. He was lovely. I respectfully presented all my things. And on, and the truth is, I really was uncomfortable. I thought he'd give me some secret mantra to say to calm down my body. But the other truth is that I thought he'd be pretty impressed with my practice. Wow, you know, maybe the next thing I'll levitate or fly or who knows, you know. So that was also, but anyway, I didn't say that part to him. I just said the other part. And he listened very carefully and he said, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I was surprised by that. I thought I was going to get a mantra. So I uh, said to him, really, the textbook answer to that question, which practicing, which is practicing mindfulness leads to insight, which leads to understanding, which leads to wise intention, which leads to compassionate action. It's really, it's true, it does. And he said, no, really. He said, nah, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I said, what do you mean? He said, how much do you go out in the street every day and just look around and see how people are suffering? So I thought, oh, maybe, first I had a moment of thinking, maybe he sees that, the part of me that's a show-off, and, you know, and he's telling me off. No, I don't think so. He was way too kind for, me, for that, and I think he meant it. And a couple of months later, I was in Israel, and through a connection of my husband's cousin who knew a certain Rebbe in the old city, we got to have, we got to be invited by him to come over and meet him. And we came to meet him uh, on a Friday morning and he himself answered the door and invited us in and invited us to sit down and talk with him. And uh, there was a dining table well, in, in his main meeting room and he sat at the head of it. And uh, my husband sat right to his right and... Uh, because I'm aware of the culture and the formality and the role of women in that culture, I sat at the other end of the table and let the men have a discussion. So I was sitting down at the end of the table, but listening. And uh, my husband and he had a discussion about the cousin back and forth. Uh, very pleasant. And then, uh, I don't remember what it was that they were talking about, but Seymour said, uh, and my wife here is a Buddhist meditation teacher. And I think, oh, maybe that was not the right way to start this conversation. We've just met him. He might have some hesitation or whatever. But in fact, he leaned forward and he said, really, I'm so interested in that. Tell me what you do. And I said, well, I, I practice a practice of paying attention every moment to what's happening and trying to feel that fully. How is it? How am I holding it in my mind when it arrives? I remember the conversation very well because uh, he spoke in English and I don't speak Hebrew. I do speak Yiddish and that was his second language, so part of that we spoke. 
And uh, then he said, tell me the hardest time you ever had with your meditation practice. So I explained to him, well, you know, I was for a while quite content with different things I was learning about my mind, and then my body started to feel quite different with that, different kinds of energy feelings in my body and uh, my body shaking, my body going spontaneously into various postures. So he said, well, I'm not a meditation teacher. I think that was the only thing he ever said to me that wasn't completely true. He was really meticulous about being true. I think he was being humble. I'm not a meditation teacher, but I think the mistake you made is you did too much of that kind of meditation. He said, you should do that. He said, a little bit of meditation every day in a very focused way, even with energy, that's okay. He said, but you should go out in the street every day and look around and see how people are suffering. I'm glad I got to tell you those stories. Because I think it's amazing that Chagdud said the same thing that Rabbi Scheinberger said half a year later that I would say to somebody now, you really, this is wonderful that you see what happens if the mind is so, so focused. In order to take that focus which is going to steady your mind and make something productive out of it, you need to go out and look around and see how people are suffering. And then take your steadiness of mind to help you figure out how you can be helpful. Transform it into something you can do to be helpful to people. One of the things that Brahmani and I thought we would do this morning, that she would do this morning, is um, teach you one form of moving meditation that we haven't yet done. In order to do it in this room, what do you think, Brahm? I was thinking if Will moves himself onto that Zafu and we pick these up, this is less complicated than it sounds, but if Will goes to sit here and we pick up these guys mm-hmm. and we use the aisles, yep. this Whoop. one and this one and around. Yeah. Now, Will, you have to move back one. And Juliana has to move herself a little bit over nearer to Will. Okay, now we've got it. It doesn't matter because you're going to get up anyway. Okay, now Brahmani is going to tell you something in general about walking and moving meditation and then in specific how we're going to do it. And she's going to start now. Hi. Nice to see you all again. So, as we said, you know, the Buddha said we can meditate sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, right? Basically, pay attention 24-7. And there's a formal way to do walking meditation. And how many of you are, are you familiar with walking meditation? Great. Good. And who's never done walking meditation? Awesome. So sometimes you'll go off to a retreat center and people are sent out and traditionally you take a space of 10 to 15 feet and you just walk back and forth. So it's not about getting anywhere, right? It's simply about being in the moment, 
pay attention to how the body is moving, pay attention to what arises in your mind, just like when you're sitting, right? Just like when you're sitting in meditation. And you can typically, yeah, that's great, let your hands be in the front, be in the back, by your sides, or pay attention to how they move, right? Thank you so much. So right where you are, let's all come on up to standing. And because you have been sitting for a while, let's make a little space and we'll just let the spine dangle a little bit and then we'll come to the walking meditation. So create enough space so your feet, I'll come up a little higher so you could see. So your feet about hip width or a little wider. Soften your knees so you feel the earth beneath you. And then just begin to let the body hinge forward. And you might like to just let your hands slide down the legs because some of us will just pause there. And if it's comfortable, you let your hands slide down the legs and your torso melts down. Hmm. Now if that's too much for anyone, either the hands or the knees can rest above the the hands or the elbows could rest above your knees. And wherever you are, just take a little time to breathe in the body. Scan around. Just scan around. Even if it's just a little bit. And let your body show you where there's a little tension. It's not a problem. Just take a breath and relax what you can. It's been sitting a while. We've been listening and then we know that everything is interconnected. Our body feels what our heart and our mind feels. And so when we pay attention and we feel, we can also bring some softness and caring. Right here you can wish yourself while as you scan around, ah, may I feel safe. May I feel happy. May this body be strong and may I feel at ease. Hmm. And then you might even notice that your belly can soften a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, or the muscles of your face. Okay, just another breath or two here. Hmm. And to release the safest way with the knees soft and the spine gently lengthening, your hands can walk up the legs as the body comes back up to standing. (sighs) And close your eyes for a moment and feel yourself standing now here on this earth. We hear the sounds outside. There might be a story around that, oh, that might be my car. (laughs) I wonder if we should go. (laughs) Whose car is that? All the things that happen. Oh, we're finding out now what kind of car it is. (laughs) It's a black... Hyundai or Honda? Oh, God, that's me. (laughs) It should stop on its own. 
Let's send the blessings. May you be happy on the Odyssey. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So right where we are. If not, I'll just send someone out with my keys. So bring your awareness down to your feet. <laughs> huh? Oh. Oh. You're so... It's just that, okay, <laughs> we'll try this again, I love it. Ah, okay, so it's great. <laughs> Levity is always important, right? Nothing's too serious. So very serious, bring your awareness down to your feet. <laughs> Our feet are the only, but feel the joy in that and the, the support of each other and how, you know, we all just help out. It's great. And just begin to let your weight shift a little bit to one foot. Notice what happens on the other side and then go to the other way. And then as you lift, shift your foot. Notice how that foot begins to lift. And you just shift it forward a little bit and then just take a little tiny step. And notice how your back foot lifts, the leg lifts and moves and places. And pause for a moment. Hmm. And that's pretty much your walking meditation, right? And we can use the words lifting, moving, placing. Or you can just pay attention to how your body feels walking. And you pay attention to how the mind is responding. Now we can walk around in this circle, as Sylvia said. If you find yourself needing to walk to the side of somebody, that's fine. You might notice someone's walking slower than you. How does that feel inside you? Is it a time for blessing that person or yourself? Sometimes I love doing walking meditation just with simple phrases. May I feel happy? May I feel peaceful? It's a great time. And then if someone strong comes into my awareness, either my thought or in person, just blessing them. Okay? So let's begin. And... I'm also aware that some of us might want to walk on the outside there and some might through here, but I don't know what the outside of that looks like. Does that get a lot of space? So we have a few aisles here, right? And if you need to use the facilities on the way, we can do that. So let's begin, okay? Hmm.
And just for a moment, just stop right where you are. Eyes open or eyes closed and notice what you're aware of inside your being, in the body, in the breath, the energy, the mind and the heart. Every action has a result and the result of this practice of walking and paying attention. And then let the eyes open and in that same mindful way find your way back to your seat. I'm very glad we uh, did that particular walking Brahmini. Thank you very much. Particularly uh, because it was the first time since we've met here that we all had a chance to get up and slowly look at everybody else. You know, we do. It's not like you walk around and don't notice who's there. You, you see who's there. and um, I notice what uh, I notice as I'm walking around, and I notice things that I didn't see before. How young some people are! There are some people here 
who is so young it isn't born yet. And I didn't notice that until I was walking around. But it'll be born pretty soon, but it, you know, it's definitely here. I, I actually, I lost sight of where it is, but it's somewhere here. There it is, back there. When will it be born? Oh, so here it is, it's sometime in April, so. In my experience, when people uh, have been waiting to have a baby and at a, uh, particularly at a retreat that's um, emphasizing blessing, they actually love it because the whole time they're just sending blessings to the person they're carrying around in them. And of course, this is all you know, sort of apocryphal stories, but when I talk to people afterwards who've had their babies, they said, oh, it was just such a smooth thing to have them. They knew they were blessed. I'm sure my experience was so pleasant because they felt that. How about if we felt about everybody, just like who we're carrying around? Somebody once suggested to me that before people uh, who are getting together to make a peace treaty or something, or different countries are coming together to negotiate something, that they should first have a, a week-long retreat first and sit there and have they eat the same food, sleep quiet, you know, no talking. And just walk and sit and walk and sit and hear the birds in the morning and the birds at sundown and eat and spend a week just settling down and looking at each other. You know, in addition to eyes and a nose and a mouth, everybody eats, everybody moves around, everybody looks around, everybody looks different. I met a man once who was a um, a lawyer and also a mediator. And uh, he told me a story also on a retreat similar to this with the wishing of blessings and also bringing up in their mind, people, people in one's mind, people who are one's difficult person or people with whom they are in conflict. And uh, he told the story of, uh, uh, this is all on the East Coast, and he lived in New Jersey in a particular area where a very high concentration of uh, traditional Jewish people. So that there were some businesses there. I don't actually, I never actually knew what the businesses were, but two commercial businesses in the manufacturing something that was germane to the Jewish community. I don't know whether it different brands of matzah or... But something that uh, would be specifically interesting to that community that had some disagreements that they were having trouble negotiating about. So they called him in as a mediator because he was a lawyer and a mediator and he lived in their community so he was part of the community and they could trust him. And he said it was the most amazing thing that 
they met for several days, he said, and by the by morning, everybody would come, each side would come with papers and affidavits and transcripts and uh, all kinds of things to show as um, evidence of how the other company had done them wrong in some way. And that each side came with their own lawyers and they sat on different sides. He said all morning they would be arguing back and forth and back and forth. And um, sometime and during the day things would get more and more tense. So sometimes at some point in the afternoon somebody would say, wow, wait, it's time to say the afternoon prayers. And everybody would stand up and because the afternoon prayers, which everybody knows by heart and are actually quite short, it's less than 10 minutes to recite them, everybody can do them out loud. But everybody turns facing east for those prayers. So here they are, these two conflicting sides, and they both turn so that they're facing east. And he said, after they finished with the prayers, they sat down, said the negotiation in the afternoon went way easier, everybody calmed down. And I thought about that many times since then. I thought about the two aspects of what happened in those ten minutes. Can you can you think about what what would you what would be your interpretation? What two things happened to smooth out the afternoon? Yeah, what do you think? Alignment spirituality. So, so that's number one. They say, hey. We both look at us facing in the same direction. We all have the same thing in mind. We all have the same belief system. We all want a world where what's most important is that one loves one neighbor as oneself. Everybody wants that. We pray that same thing every day. These are my people who believe that. That's one thing. Everybody's people believes that, by the way. It's not uniquely to that tradition. Everybody wants peace on earth, goodwill. Fundamentally, that's what we most need. So the number one, remember, oh, wait a minute, these people are on my team. Here, we're not on the same team, but on a larger scale of ideals and values, we're on the same team. And the second thing is they took 10 minutes out from to say something that they've said thousands of times every day, like, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. When I'm on an airplane and it suddenly is flying along and suddenly without announcing we're coming to a, 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 a rocky time, uh, often they announce afterwards, after the rocky time is finished, then they come on and say, ladies and gentlemen, sorry, this is a captain, sorry about that. That was a Rocky Mountain, they got a name for it, Rocky Mountain what? A mountain wave, that's what it was. That was a mountain wave, and we can't see them on the radar. So that all of a sudden, we couldn't tell you about it. So all of a sudden it goes ding, 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 ding for a little while. So the plane starts to do that, and my mind starts to say, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. Actually, complete disclosure, it says, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being, because that's how I learned it. 35 years ago and said it a million times and so really it's in there like morning prayers or afternoon prayers and it clicks in automatically and it means calm down it's going to be alright or calm down it's not going to be alright but calm down there's a there's a 
there's a, a, a re-emergence uh, of the British slogan during the Second World War of keep calm and carry on. How many people here have that on a cup at home? I have it on a cup. You can buy them on a cup, on napkins. You have it on a cup, Linda? Uh, keep calm and carry on. That's what we're supposed to do in life. Hold it together, figure it out, and carry on. It's not a new idea. But just the, but the, the idea that the mind could stop, apple juice. What's true here? What's true is we're all people. We all want the same thing in the end. We don't want to be fighting. I thought we would read together... Um, the Metta Sutta. And I'll tell you about it for a minute first, and then we'll study it. The Metta Sutta by itself is the one piece of literature that I take with myself wherever I go to teach. Oh, wait a minute. By the way, Pause. We pushed the pause button on that. I did not. I got involved in having noticed the unseen person that it says in the Metta Sutta, wishing well for all beings, those that are seen and those that are yet to be. I love that line because there's one that is yet to be that we know about, but we don't even know about anybody else. Might be somebody else here who is yet to be. When you look at an airplane full of people, you don't know who else is yet to be who's on that airplane we don't know about yet because it's not clear. But I didn't ask you what did you see when you were walking around and what did you learn? So we just paused the button on this. What did you see? What did you feel? What did you discover? What did you learn as you walked around? One thing you learned. Yeah. Uh, one thing, and I, I went outside to walk around and decided to take my socks off and be barefoot. And I just was suddenly, uh, oh, my Thank you. Um, I was, hello. I was suddenly struck by just the childlike feeling of having your barefoot on the wood, just um, with all the things going on with my life. And just that instant childlike joy of feeling like I'm running on the beach today. Mm-hmm. And so that was already a beautiful gift today. Oh, I'm very glad about that. Tell me your name again. Oh, my name is Jordan. Jordan. Just like the river. I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was thinking about, you know where I think that, uh, where I, where, when you explain that childlike feeling of being on the beach, there's a book I, I, somewhere, it's probably in, I don't I imagine it's still in circulation, it's called Transactional Analysis, about 35 years old, I think. And it had, I remember it because it had a paperback cover and a photograph of a child standing on the beach. you remember it, Linda? What's it? So you tell everybody. Show everybody what, the, what it looks like. That, oh, you can't. I don't remember the cover, but I do remember Okay. So the cover is you're on the beach looking at the ocean, and there's a child at the ocean's edge, just where the last wave has come in and gone out. And the child is with her back to you. She's a, she's a two-year-old because she's standing, but she's probably not more than three, maybe three. She's naked. So how do I know she's a girl? 
because it's the back of her that I'm looking at. It's a girl, because I'm a girl probably, so I really probably, that's why, that's the only way you could know from the back, right? But her back is to the camera. She's standing by the edge of the ocean, and she's standing there like that. And I just really loved it. I decided that that picture meant, here I am, life, come and get me. I'm not afraid. Whatever's here, that's, I'm, I am interested. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? That's what that picture is. And you reminded me of that, Jordan, when you said the joy of running around on the beach and feeling it on your feet. That our, our minds are repositories not only of the traumata in our life, but of the really extraordinary bits that kept our minds afloat and kept us going and our hearts going all these years. And it's wonderful when they connect to this and this and this. Um, in moments that the mind is not preoccupied by mulling over some story and it's really present, what comes out is all of those similar connections in the mind, feeling free, feeling delighted. We keep, we're, we're a little bit really, or maybe a lot really, bewildered by the stories we keep on insistently telling ourselves. It's no good, it could be better, it should have done it another way, it's going to be bad, it should be otherwise. If we stop that, we say, whoa, here I am. Then we have that connection, yeah. I guess I, I feel the nature of human beings is unresolvable. The good... The, the nature of human beings is actually unresolvable. The good and the bad, both, and not equal. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, and I don't know if it's a kind of glitch <laughs> in the way we're made, but the bad seems to, the, the, the egoism, the greed, the, you know, all the things that are wrong, predominates because it's easier. And unless we work on ourselves, you know, the, we're, we can't be consistently good. So... I don't know what to do with that, really. I think that... uh, Tell me your name again. Elena. Elena, I don't know what to do other than to agree that it's mystifying where it seems to me that, um, that a happy person can't do an, uh, can't do an afflictive act. That if a person is happy, they wouldn't do a mean thing or a cruel thing or a greedy thing. When, it, when we're happy, it's somehow, not meaning even delighted, but somehow content in themselves, they don't afflict other people. And people who are in some way afflicted, even if their affliction is the, the sense of, I don't have enough, I need other stuff, is greed, they can be bewildered by it and act through it. And it comes out this mishmash of a world there, so I'm, I don't know the big picture of are we strung this way and this way and how we get to be that way and that way. I know psychological theories that if we're well loved, then the likelihood is we'll turn out to be loving. But also sometimes I had this with me that I was going to use if a time came to use it. So this is the time. So you can put down the sutta. We'll get up to it right away. This is the program notes from an opera that I saw um, just last month in Chicago 
called um, An American Dream. And it's a story that takes place in uh, 1942, three, where, um, well, this is, this is uh, Matthew Ozawa, who's the, uh, um, wrote the play. Like 120,000 other Japanese Americans allowed to take only what they could carry, my family was forcibly removed from their home in Los Angeles and sent to an incarceration camp in Hart Mountain, Wyoming. It was in this prison, compounds of barracks, patrolled by armed guards and surrounded by barbed wire fences, that my father was born. His siblings sadly died in the camp, and by the time I was born, much of my family's Japanese culture, language, and religion had been silenced in the hope that I would become a truly assimilated American. For much of my upbringing, I knew very little about my Japanese-American heritage. I saw very few Japanese objects and pictures, was told very little about the loss, the pain, the struggles my family endured. Wiping the dust off my family history in order to investigate the opera's themes of home and heritage was akin to unearthing a hidden secret. The opera, in short, involves a, a few people and it's all in one hour, it's all straight through and you see the inside of a house in the neighborhood of Seattle inhabited by a, a Japanese family, a, a father and a mother and a teenage daughter who are packing up their things because they uh, are afraid that people are going to come by and pursuant to that relocation order uh, take them away. So they are burning up all their documents, all their birth certificates, everything that's of their past family. The only thing that gets left when they leave their house is the daughter leaves a doll, a Japanese doll of hers, hidden under the floorboards of the house. And you see a couple arrive uh, intent to buy this house and negotiate the sale with her father, the father in this family, at a lower price than the house is worth because he insists, you know, it's not worth anything to you now and convinces him now is the time to do it and buys a, out of personal greed and the desire to have a house for himself and his wife, a refugee from Germany. So they buy the house and uh, the family leaves and uh, at some point there's an announcement on uh, uh, what sounds like the radio of um, Harry Truman announcing that the first atomic bomb has been dropped on Hiroshima. And if you're old enough, like I am, to remember the, the news of the bomb, I don't remember hearing the about I remember sitting at a table in 1945 across from my mother who was reading 
but looking at the pictures in the morning paper, uh, in August of 1945, when I would have been nine years old, and my mother was crying about what had happened, the, the bombing of Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. Uh, but they sell a house, and this couple takes it over, and time passes now. And here's the announcement by Harry Truman. The war is over. And the daughter from the house, who's hidden her doll, comes back. And the woman in the house says, I've found your doll, and I kept it for you. And uh, the daughter says, before we left the house, a letter came addressed to you. And um, I confess, and I feel bad about the fact that I didn't give you the letter. I stole it, and I took it with me. And she gives the letter, and the letter is the news that, that the woman who had moved into the house, Eva, has the news from family that her parents have been killed in one of the concentration camps. So you don't know in that story who are the bad guys and who are the good guys and how everybody suffers and greed gets the better of people and people do terrible things and how to look at that and really know how am I going to keep my heart in any place going? What am I going to do to keep going? Human beings do this kind of thing. They steal, they lie, they... They take other people and take opportunities to take their stuff. And then you, we get left with philosophical questions like are people fundamentally good or fundamentally not good? But I don't think there are, there's a, like an answer. I think that doesn't go down any line that at least I know of that comes to a conclusion that's that that's a final conclusion. I think certainly where we're born and how we're born and how we treat it has a lot to do with it. What we're taught has a great deal to do with how we behave. Everybody's mind, when it meets new experiences, which it's doing all day long, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend with cordiality. just thinking of the line, the pickpocket, a, a regular people sees a crowd and a pickpocket only sees pockets. You know, it's what's what, what you're looking for, you know, that what are you looking for? When you take a bodhisattva vow, you say, I'm looking for ways to help. I'm looking to be on the alert for ways to help. And you can become a first receiver, a first, a, a first responder. You're looking for ways to help. People do amazing acts of goodness and amazing acts of cruelty. And the only thing that I'm absolutely sure of is if I am behaving as scrupulously kindly as I can, not confused by greed or envy or anger, then I will be happier afterwards. I'll feel good afterwards. Don't feel good if I don't do the right thing. That people, I think it's true that we, that 
mostly we our conscience suffers. That young girl comes back. She said, "I had a letter from you, and I feel bad that I saved it and given didn't give it to you at the time." And this other woman says, "I'm sorry, I caused you to leave and have to leave your doll hidden." It's it's like the it's like the Neruda poem. Who should apologize first? We're all hurting each other. I think um, one of the other notes by though that was the writer of the play, the librettist said, "I have to. Uh, I had to change my mind. Um, I learned. This is, I guess, what I want to say is that we keep learning." Um, He said that, that in writing, in the writing the libretto, he said, um, in studying the time, he said, I studied Executive Order 9066, in which President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed about the evacuation of Japanese Americans to camps. And then he said, I had grown up, I had to reevaluate the narrative I'd grown up with about this particular president. During the Depression, Franklin Roosevelt helped my grandfather find a job. My grandfather was struggling. He was an only child. His father had died. He needed to support his mother. To my grandfather, Franklin Roosevelt was a hero. But heroes are people. Franklin Roosevelt did help my grandfather find work. And he also signed an executive order that took rights away from American citizens and put children into detention camps. Working on the story of an American dream complicated many narratives and also made me more attentive to what's happening today. We hear a lot about executive orders. We know that bigotry, hate crimes, anti-Semitism has not gone away. Working on this story connected me to organizations doing important and inspiring work. The Japanese American Citizens League, in particular, galvanizes the voices of Japanese Americans to stand up for social justice causes. The Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. brought me to my knees. That organization continues to educate and fight against anti-Semitism and genocide around the globe. I don't know the big questions for is it in the nature of human beings. This is what I know. When I am with my friends and I say to them, when you find out that you did something inadvertently and you hurt somebody, do you feel bad about it? They say, yeah. And I say, would you ever knowingly do X or Y or Z? They say, no. So my friend, now they're my friends. So maybe I pick out selectively the people who I know or intuit or have reason to believe have values of cherishing, just so should we cherish all living beings as a mother would cherish her one and only son. And I don't know why some people don't have those values. And I'm trying not to hate them because I don't want to have hatred in my mind. But if the world could send out that, I'm waiting for people to figure out the uh, world-changing tweet that everybody is going to get at the same time. It says, ready, set, go. Save the world. Do the following. Visit your neighbors. Share what you have with them. Kiss your whole family. Take care of everybody. Don't hurt anybody. It'll come back. 
Let's read the sutta, which says in essence, don't hurt anybody. I love this. It's like, I think it's a primer also in uh, Buddhism. It is a primer of Buddhism. When you read a book on what the Buddha taught, big or little, it will say, we have three parts in this book, Sila Samadhi Panya, training morals and ethics, training the mind, and understanding what's going on. Sila Samadhi Panya. And when you read this, the first third of it is training the behavior of the body, training ethics and morals. Every religious tradition that has endured has a Ten Commandments or a Code of Ethics or a set of rules. And no matter what language they're in, at least in all the religions that I know, they say, respect other people's stuff, respect other people's lives, respect other people's family. Don't hurt anybody. Don't confuse them by... Anyway, let's read the sutta together. You read it with me. Do you have one? you have a copy? Read with, read with the person next to you then. There you go. This is what should be done with one who is filled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the weak or the mighty, the medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. The mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So radiant in this heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the poor-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Just for a minute, what was your favorite line as we read it? You think, oh, I love that line. Linda, what did you love? 
So, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Don't you? Think? I'd like to have a boundless heart, cherishing all living beings. What else? What's that? maybe that's the best line? What else? Omitting none. Now that's a really radical line, isn't it? People over the years, people have said have said to me when I start introducing this kind of practice, which inevitably includes, as it already has for us this morning, invite into your mind a few people who yeah rattle your mind a little bit, and people will inevitably say, "You're not going to ask me to send blessings to you." Ah da da, you know who or that one. Or my brother-in-law who hurt my feelings so bad 20 years ago or whatever. I have a grudge since then. It's, it's worrisome to say, boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Uh-oh. Actually, cherish does not mean move in with them. It just means not wish them ill. That, that's all. What we are really trying to do is not to have ill will in the heart. Okay. What's another line, favorite line? Yeah. But one is skilled in goodness. One is skilled in goodness. And that, someone said to you, Hi, I understand you have a med- meditation practice now. What are you doing? What are you trying to do? Is that, I'd like to be skilled in goodness. That sounds good. I'd like to be able to say that. Maybe people say, Who are you, skilled in goodness? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, you had another one. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies. You know what I'm going to try to find? Actually, one of our volunteers is going to go try to find it or ask about it. There's a CD called uh, The Chant of Metta. And they probably have it in the office. And uh, that particular line with the woman chanting on the CD when she says, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, it's really lovely. And what I'm trying to find, what what we'll try to find, if they know where it is, the chant of Metta, is we'll put it here on the, um, we'll play it during the lunchtime. If you want to come in here and sit quietly and listen to it. I had it in the, the disc in my car uh, uh, during the time of September 11th, 2001. And for days I played it every time I got in the car and went somewhere. It's just... And you have a wonderful name. And I... Babette. Babette. Now it came to me at the last minute... I was thinking, I know her name, I know her name. She just told me the name. I remembered, I liked the name, I made a fuss about the name. Can't remember the name, it's Babette. It takes me a little while, we get old, it takes a little while <laughs> for the elevator to come up <laughs> to your floor. But there it is. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I love those two lines. Uh, they 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 can mean different things to different people. What do they mean to you? Uh, it doesn't. Yes, exactly. So that it does not mean that you don't feel like eating lunch anymore, or that you don't prefer chocolate to vanilla. But it means 
not fussing if things aren't. It means free of addiction to having what you want. Well, we have preferences, but free from addictions. Not uh, what did you think? Not born again into this world means. <laughs> I think I, I think of that on a moment to. I think of that, yes, I also had enough, but I think of it on a moment-to-moment basis that I'm going to come back in one minute to be the person I'll be in one minute and I don't want to come back in another minute feeling guilty or unhappy or whatever. So I think I'm moment-to-moment reborn and I don't know about anything else. Who else? What? This is actually not a thing from here, just a connected request. Just... um, I think it's connected to the goodness and the... um, Yesterday you left us saying, um, I'm going to teach you how to deal with, be with um, the fortune of others when your own fortune hasn't showed up in that form. It's just a request to go there because it was... um, We are moving on. (laughs) At some point, and I think it's probably very connected to this. Well, when it says, omitting none, it means a good heart to everybody. It means a good heart to everybody in this airplane. May we land safely. It means a good heart to everybody that we know and care about and the people that uh, we're with. It means a good heart to someone that we know or even don't know who's in a position of being of sickness or hurt or agonized about anything, uh, to really, you know, wow, that's a person. Two eyes and a nose and a mouth like me to feel for them. And for somebody who has just the stuff that you think, oh. You know, it's a little bit like um, the question that came up with Linda earlier. What if somebody comes up in your mind and the mind is agitated about it. Do you remember the Publishers Clearinghouse? Publishers Clearinghouse, sometimes you, you always get postcards from them. How many people send them back in? Be all right if you did. I thought about it the last time. I thought somebody wins these, you know. But anyway, they, they send out probably 300 million, which is what's in the United States. You buy either you buy magazines or don't actually, and then somebody wins the publisher's hearing clearinghouse, and there's a video usually of person arriving at the home of, and they open the door and someone's bringing them a check. You know, my one of my granddaughters works for an organization called Earn, E A R N, which is um, a, it's a nonprofit in San Francisco which teaches people, mostly single mothers, how to budget, how to save money, how to open a savings account. And they had some promotion, some contest last year where people signed up and actually came out the lead person. And she and her team flew to whatever city it was to present that person with a big check. It wasn't a million dollars, but it was some check big check, like the the size of the check, like on the publisher's clearinghouse. And she said it was great to go up to this woman's house, knock, 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 open the door, here we are. And I said, to be able to come and give somebody a tremendous gift, great. Except if they're getting a tremendous gift, and we'd like to have the tremendous <laughs> gift, you know. <laughs> 
You know, yesterday, my colleague, I told you last night, the one about my colleague said at this new staff meeting, they met somebody, they immediately liked each other, they went to lunch, then they already fell in love, then they were already planning their future together, and here I am with a just broken up relationship and newly out of a job. And the thing is, I'm very pleased for my friend, but I'm in pain. I'm in pain. How am I going to do that? And, you know, it's really hard to not feel I'm not getting my share. It's not fair. It's a, not a just world. They're giving out things. They're not, it's a not fair give out. It is a not fair give out, you know? Even the the, uh, the kinds of mental meditations that people sometimes try to do when they are trying to wish joy to someone who's got some great good fortune and they say things like may your may your joy increase may it continue may you enjoy it i'm not i don't usually teach that meditation because i wouldn't in my real life in my mind or in my action say that it's a stilted thing to say if uh, one of my granddaughters were to become pregnant i'd be hysterical about how happy I was. I wouldn't stay, maybe, maybe a joy increase. And, and if I thought about it or if I said it, I'd be pretty whipped up about it. And if somebody was trying very hard and couldn't become pregnant and I knew about them or they were related to me, I'd feel badly for them and I would feel that I understood their feeling. I wish it were me if somebody else were to announce that. We always want so much to have what we think we want and other people get it. Again, it's not fair. The better job, the book contract, the person who falls in love with you. To be able to say, I I think I said this last night, if it were really a friend of mine, I could say, you know what? I'm really thrilled for you and this is terrible for me because I don't have any of those things and I'd really like it. And if I don't know the people, and I can't say that, to be able to say, wow, congratulations, and unto myself be thinking, this is really hard. I've been through this so many times now. I feel so sad. They don't have to know about it, but I feel so sad. May I feel comforted. May I feel at ease. Really, the practice, I think, is more more comforting and consolation and compassion than it is anything else. I think we're continually being disappointed, big and little. Was anybody here disappointed this morning over the smallest thing? What, what were you disappointed this morning? You want to say? No, okay. Who was? I was disappointed that my coffee pot didn't work right. Yeah. Messed up my whole day because I was oh. supposed to take care of business in the morning. So after forty minutes, she... what's your name? Um, I'm Corey. Corey. Corey's dog did not poop on schedule, <laughs> and will be uncomfortable all day long, probably. And Corey is feeling badly about it. That's a, you know we do. Um, I hope not in your apartment, Corey. <laughs> Yeah, who else felt disappointed this morning? 
Um, I was disappointed that I didn't have more time to read. Okay. I'm, I'm Dwayne, and I chose a muffin this morning that looked really, really good, and I was, dis- I was disappointed because it had chocolate chips in it. <laughs> it was a very important contribution, Dwayne, because the thing is, the thing is, the mind is indiscriminate. It doesn't mind being the same disappointed with the wrong cupcake with a tree fell down on my house in last night's storm. It's disappointed is disappointed. What else were you disappointed about? Well, um, I guess it's like disappointed and. Um, and this happens to me a lot. Like... I want to be here at Spirit Rock. I want to be here with you. And I also want to be somewhere else at the same time. So I'm like disappointed that I can't have it all. <laughs> no, no. I think, what's your name? I'm Meredith. Meredith? Yeah. I'm very glad for your share, Meredith, because I, 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 I would. I could really, if I were a debate team and someone said, debate the, the truth that we're disappointed a lot of the time, even more than we realize, I could do that. We cover up for it a lot because we'd say to us, well, it's all right, it's all right, don't feel bad, it's okay, it's all right. But uh, you remember there was a period of time that people had frames around their license plate that said, I'd rather be sailing, I'd rather be skiing, I'd rather be hiking, I'd rather be doing something else. But, you know, I'd rather be doing something else. I said, this is, a, this is really a problem. Because the thing is, we're having a life in the meantime. And, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's, it's a game. But I'd rather be means I'm missing out on what's now because I'm not being what I'd like to be being. A friend of mine died quite young in his late 30s, early 40s of breast cancer, which is very unusual in men. And he, he had a family, he had, he had a really a good career. He wrote a life, he wrote a letter to be sent to all of his friends after he died. And one of the lines in the letter, thinking about his life, was, I would have wanted more but I never wanted other. I think that is really cool. I would really like to be able to say, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. How many people ever want other? Uh. (laughs) And it's really the attachment to wanting other that's the cause of suffering for all of us. Otherwise, we'd all go around happy as anything because it'd always be fine. Oh, look at this. Fine. Another moment. <laughs> Someone brought me this cartoon this morning. This is Roz Chast. And it's a person getting up. I'll, I'll leave it up here or we'll put it on the bulletin board outside. That's a good idea. Do we have a bulletin board outside? <laughs> we have a bulletin board outside the upstairs meditation hall. No. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll get a piece of scotch tape. And we'll just put it on the back wall here for the rest of the day. It's, a, it's a, by Roz Chast, and it's called An Inside-of-Body Experience, in contrast to an out-of-body experience. And there's a disgruntled 
woman sitting up in a bed thinking, once again, here I am. And it, <laughs> it's, a, it's a joke on... Uh, it's meant to be a joke. It's a, sort of a melancholy joke. I, maybe all jokes are. It's... Um, In, uh, for, for traditional Jews, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you know when you wake up is you think to yourself, wow, how grateful I am that I'm alive yet for another day. It's a nice way to start the day. And uh, this woman is saying, once again, here I am. <laughs> and I don't know if Roz Chast is particularly joking with that. She may have gone to a class where they said this, get up in the morning and say, wow, another day. How grateful I am, because it could have been otherwise. I think really, if we were really here, if we were really, really awake here, we would always be grateful, because we would always see that the alternative is to be dead or not here. And nobody's really ready to do that. We really want to be here, however terrible it is at any time. Wow, here I am. Okay, let's go back to this. Um, Let's read the first 13 lines. I love that. I think it's 12 or 13, but we'll know where to stop. Here we go. Ready, set. This is what should be done from one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Stop. That's, that's, (laughs) that's it. That's the teaching on sila, on ethics, on morality. Uh, my favorite line, because it says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do, do, do it this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. And then the last sentence, in case you didn't get anything, else, what we previously said, not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would lighter reprove. That means this covers everything in case I left anything out. Really, really, not, not doing anything of which the, not, let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. I have a little bit of didactic teaching. If you look at the, the other, uh, chart that we had of the development of the virtues. It's the whole other paper that you had. I'll tell you the folklore around this paper. I said it a little bit last night just before we went home that it says in in Tales of the Early Buddha's Life it says as a as a folklore in his life, before his life as Siddhartha Gautama, uh, the Buddha needed to perfect the ten perfections of the heart. 
These are all wonderful heart capacities, virtues. And he needed to perfect them all. That's why these are called the ten virtues or the ten perfections. Before he could be born as Siddhartha Gautama and become the Buddha. So first of all, there's one of these ten things that I think is a ringer. Because if you think about, you could get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to really practice generosity. Or I'm going to really practice honesty. I'm going to scrupulously watch everything I say. One of them, I think you get up, can't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to really... Which one is that one? I think so. You can't get up and say, today I'm really going to be wise the whole day. Because how would you know? You might fool yourself, right? But it's good that it's there. I love it that it's there. Just, It's not as easy to think about as cultivating because all of these others would themselves cultivate an understanding and the understanding I don't even know what I made up let me just see (laughs) I made up this chart 20 years ago and I don't even remember I made it up out of what I think is true I didn't make it up out of a whole cloth but (laughs) wisdom oh here it is that's fine (laughs) wisdom you could practice it while you could develop an understanding that although our minds are continually and inevitably challenged by desires I want more of this or less of this peace is possible which is the first and the second and the third noble truth and then the next column says how you support them okay you practice wise effort which means Rahula don't do it without thinking it over is this going to cause suffering for yourself or other people wise concentration really steady this boat and wise mindfulness what's going on may I meet this moment fully and the whole of the eightfold path and it will manifest as clarity which means we'll really see what's going on but if we really see what's going on we get heartbroken we get more vulnerable we behave ourselves more and we take care of more people. So, now, let's not count the wisdom one. If you were thinking about, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to think about which of these virtues am I the best at? What am I really good at? And which one maybe do I need to think about practicing more and how would that be? In essence, it's, a, it's kind of a phony set-up question. This question is really, which, which of these virtues, which two of these virtues speaks to you the most about, uh, let me practice in this way, and get a practice buddy. Maybe the person sitting next to you. Maybe a, get a person you don't know. Maybe here, here, do you know each other? No, okay, there, there, there. Okay, get a person you don't know. You be the practice buddy. There you go. Everybody got a buddy? You have Will? You have Will? Everybody got a buddy? Okay, wait, wait. You don't know what you're doing yet. Bring your chair up. I'll sit with you. Bring your chair up. I'll sit with you. Wait, wait. 
Nobody knows what they're doing yet. Wait. <laughs> how many people, how many people in this assembly group are school teachers at any level? Teach school at any level. Okay. So those people definitely know how to make a question. Make a question. Because the, really, the motivation is I want you to talk about these. And, and one way or another. So you have to make it interesting as a question. Like which one is most interesting to me to talk about? Um, maybe... Um, oh, here's the way we'll do it. It just came to me. It just came to me. Now it came to me. Okay. I want to say that the first of these is generosity. And in uh, Buddhist um, lore, it's often said that generosity is first because it is primary among all the virtues because it really speaks to selflessness. Generosity means really able to share yourself. It means the ability to let go. You know, let go is a word that uh, has gotten, um, I think, it's gotten misunderstood and sometimes misused all in the last 30, 40 years since the whole self-awareness movement where people will say sometimes to somebody, this thing is in my mind and it just is bothering me so much. And somebody meaning well will say, it'll go away if you just let go of it. But the thing is, if you could, you would. It's not a helpful thing to say to somebody, just let go, as if you could. So that's not so helpful. But the thing is, that when you can let go of something, if I'm thinking I'm sitting in my mind is full of thoughts about what I'm going to do for uh, for a dinner party I'm having next Thursday, and I think to myself, yeah, I don't want to do this now. Uh, I'm supposed I'm using this time to really focus my mind. It's not a bad thing to think about, but at this moment, this is time for my mind training. I'm not thinking about it when I'm in the gym lifting. Wait, I'm thinking about that. Now I'm here and I'm really trying to focus my mind and train it to be steady. But there it went again. And, to, but, and then it comes back, okay, so you could start with this course and that goes, wait a minute. I say, well, this is pleasant. That's why I'm holding on to it. This being here just with myself, ugh. But thinking about the dinner party, that's really pleasant. To be able to say, I can let go of that now. I don't need it right now. I'll think about it Wednesday when I shop for Thursday. I don't need it. The feeling of not being needy is actually the feeling of the feeling of not wanting, being caught by want. I think about that the second line of the 23rd Psalm is I shall not want. And the verb in that sentence is I shall not crave, really. I'll be at ease. I won't need anything. I won't need anything. That kind of need where you crave. Because then the mind is at rest. But if you think about the ability to give things away because you don't need them. Cup runneth over. You don't need them. So I think that if you think of generosity as being able to give a gift, 
Give away this thought, give away this thing, give away this present. I think all of the others are gifts as well. So I'd like in each of you to say which one appeals to you the most to think about, to say, I'm taking this on for a week. I'm going to practice this in the following way. And include in your talking how is this virtue also an act of generosity. There you go. So now we have a a real live question, not a made-up question. Who doesn't have a partner? Everybody have a partner? Okay. Ready, set, go. Oh, you don't. Who who doesn't have a partner? You want to go be a partner? Yeah, you can be here.
go back down. Take a breath in and blow the breath out. Take a breath in and blow the breath out. That's my car. Is it your car that's going? Let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. (laughs) I would like to use these 15 minutes before lunch to have people share what did you learn? First of all, was that fun? Yes. That's all right. I'm just thinking the right question. I, I was thinking about, it's very fun. I think, yeah, I'm sure you knew that. That as soon as you look at people and you talk to them about anything, they become more familiar to you and they become dear to you in some way. They're not just the person who was sitting there this whole time. Now you know who they are and how what's a little bit a corner of their life. And as soon as we know that, we wake up inside because they become real and they bring us to life. I don't remember about the Velveteen Rabbit, but it's something like, you know, you get, you, you, you get brought into life when somebody loves you. And when you say, what do you think about that? That's a hidden way of saying, I love you enough to want to know why you thought about that. So... There you go. Thank you very much. What grade do you teach, by the way? Uh, I, teach, I work with all, all ages of kids, from little to through high school. What did you learn from each other? Well, I'll share one thing that you learned that was very good for you, about yourself or the other person or whatever you want to say. What do you now know that you didn't know 15 minutes ago? Yeah. You want, well, we want to have a, there you go. I can share 
You can shout? Okay, they, you don't have to shout. So, um, there's a 50-year difference between Rosa and me. I'm Susan. And we had the same issue. <laughs> now, that is very illuminating. It that was. Is... I thought it was an old woman's issue. <laughs> you want to say the issue or it no? Patience. Oh, patience. Patience. Yeah. So you have the same issue. How many people said my issue is patience? <laughs> wow, that's a popular issue. It is a popular issue. Thank you. So here, here's a share. No, then. Oh. One of you. There you go. Weren't you going to share? Oh, no? I thought you would say no. Okay, there. I'm sorry. I had issue with everything. <laughs> I like the, I like the connection between generosity and contentment and the, the the practice and the manifestation. I could see how it could go, but I could see all the pitfalls of how I couldn't go there. Like what, for instance? Well, how you can be generous, and it says you can get. Uh, caught up with the, the absence of self-centered preoccupation, Yeah, generosity can become pretty ego-serving. It could. And then be, there's no contentment. It, it, that would be true. So, so I, I went down that same, that rabbit hole on everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I think that's a very good point, which in truth no one has ever raised. I have to think a little bit. But I think that's true. If I gave something away but my heart was not really in it. That, or I gave it away, but because I thought if I give this to that person, then they'll love me. Or if I, then they'll owe it to me to give me something back. I would not have a clear intention in the giving it. And then it would be lopsided in how it came out. I would not be contented because I would know that I was doing something covert. I'm doing this in order for you to do that. I think the, uh, that's a very good point, though, because it, it reminds me of the importance of intention in everything. I had a, an experience many years ago, like I started practice 40-some years ago, and I, there was a teacher uh, once, I've forgotten even his name in the Tibetan tradition, who said with great conviction, he said, everything hangs on the point of intention. And I thought, wow. Because uh, he had been talking about intention for coming on retreat or taking up a meditation practice or any kind of a spiritual practice. And I thought, wow, I came to this meditation retreat because my husband was interested in meditation retreats and I'm always a nice person. I, if he says, let's go on a retreat, it's okay. <laughs> I didn't have any intention. I didn't want something particular to happen. I wasn't intending to get involved in it. I wasn't intending to be captivated at where I wasn't intending to study in order to become a teacher in order to I, I didn't have any and he said everything hangs on clarity of intention I thought wow I was doing it because it was the 70s and it was very hip and I wanted to be hip that was my intention I was a little old to be hip but I wanted to be anyway so I didn't know exactly what he meant and I didn't tell anybody that either but now and especially with Linda's question I am reminded of the depth of meaning in everything hangs on the point of intention. That the instructions to Rahula, 
before right, you do anything, Rahula. Why, think about why are you doing this? Is it going to be for your benefit or everybody else's benefit? That wise effort is the part of the Eightfold Path that says at any juncture where you're making a decision, you think about, is this going towards a wholesome state or an unwholesome state? If I have this thing that that person likes, am I genuinely moved to offer it to them, no strings attached? Or if I think, ah, they like this, I'll give it to them and then they'll be in my in my O or something, and they'll want to do something for me back. It's got a different end. The whole of the practice has got like pauses in it, breaks of mindfulness where the mind decides that out of clarity, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. What's actually the friendly way? The friendly way would be without any covert agendas going on. And think about all the things that we do that I certainly have done in my life, that are covert, uh, as easy as, or as simple as saying, ah, I'm so tired. I had really an impossibly hard day today. So many things went wrong. Rather than saying, you know what, sweetheart, would you do the dishes after dinner? You know, that you could just say out what you want. You don't have to do a song and dance to covertly clue in somebody else to say oh I'll give you a hand I'll draw you a bath I'll wash the dishes whatever that we could really be honest with ourselves and what we want and other people and we do them an honor when we tell them the truth and ourselves because we're not operating in a sneaky way because even if I outwit my conscious self to operate in a sneaky way my unconscious self knows I'm operating in a sneaky way (laughs) And it'll add up and tell me about it sometime later. What else? Yeah. Any question? Yeah. Um, so under truthfulness, it says that you achieve it by discovering what is true and telling the truth in ways that are helpful. Uh-huh. And I was curious if you could add some color on what are ways that are helpful. <laughs> I could. Um <laughs> Particularly, there's a bigger elaboration of it, but um, the things that we say tell the truth. I think I said yesterday, did I say these are the five things to say before admonishing? I did. It's got to be the right time and the right words and gently. Also, sometimes we say things to people Well, in the spirit of complete honesty, and we say something that's actually true, but it's hurtful. And maybe the spirit of complete honesty is not what's called for in that circumstance. And maybe the spirit of complete honesty is not what's motivating you. What's motivating you is maybe I'm going to let you have it in the front of all these other people. (laughs) So it comes back again to, is it wholesome, my motivation in that? Why am I telling this person now, first of all, if it's actually an admonishment or um, what is my total, what are my total uh, intentions? I think if that would be maybe the one takeaway that somebody, that anyone might take away from this weekend, it would be the moment in the mind that says, wait, why am I talking or why am I acting or why am I smiling or why am I not smiling? Like, what is my intention moment to moment? Because that really is what's the state of my heart. 
Did I tell you about that machine that lets your doctor know if you're fibrillating or not? Didn't tell you about this. There's a new machine that I see advertised on TV. It's not a machine. It's a little gizmo, like a like a smartwatch. And it's attached to a watch. It's not attached, but it comes with a watch that's like a smartwatch. In the ad, you see a woman sitting in a Starbucks or a Pete's or something. She's in a coffee place. And, she sa- and the o- voiceover says, wherever you are, you can check to see if your heart is uh, in sinus rhythm or out of rhythm. Here's this little thing that you open right in front of you. It's about this big. And you put one finger here and one finger here. And it's like an instant EKG. And it tells you what the rhythm of your heart is. And if you have AFib, it transmits itself through your smart watch to your smart medical team, wherever they are, that is clued into your machines, your, your pacemaker, your whatever else monitors. And it's a, it's a little... Um, electrocardiogram and so the voiceover in this says you can check the state of your heart wherever you are and I think well that's really brilliant you can also check the state of your heart wherever you are and that's really what's the state of my intention why am I talking why am I saying this why am I not saying this why am I about to say this in a group in front of everybody it might be true but it might not be so helpful it might be not helpful to the person. It, might be, it certainly wouldn't be helpful to me because if I did it, I'd feel bad about it later. Mm-hmm. That one of the things that starts to happen, even in short times of contemplative practice, it may have happened to you already here. And maybe I'll tell it to you now and then when we come back after lunch... This is a little planning. Uh, Would you like, did you think, yesterday we did that movement session for 15, 20 minutes right after lunch. Mm -hmm. We could do that again and then sit down and have the meditation, presumably all alerted up, sit down and do the meditation that involves how is my heart right now. Or we could come and do the meditation how is my heart right now because we'd be up and moving and eating and doing all that stuff, and maybe you can come in and sit down, do that meditation. And then after the meditation and talking about it, we could do that 20 minutes. That sounds good. Because A or B? B, because B. we only have time to do B? Okay, we just voted for B. Okay. <laughs> Unless, of course, it changes for you during lunch. <laughs> no, 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 we just took a vote. Okay. All those in favor of B. Okay, yeah. good. Okay, we got it. Uh one more person sharing what did they choose but you were talking about truthfulness and generosity and what was the other patience yeah Sarah well we did patience but it was more realizing that that any of them is a doorway to all of them oh yeah that if your patience you have the mindfulness and the intention to pause yeah yeah. And it takes energy to do that, and it takes restraint and renunciation, and when you then respond better, you're kinder, friendlier, um, what have I left out, you're more generous with your time, uh, 
moral, you're, you're practicing wise speech and No, no, no. That, that that was that was a complete full thing. Now it's ter- it was actually a terrific answer. I love it. I used to think that if you put all the if you uh, you know sometimes people put their hand in a sack and pull out a message or pull out a mm-hmm. tile that says something. Suppose there were these ten paramis in a in a little nice velvet bag and you put in your hand and you took out one of them and say, oh, I got patience to think about. But then if you pull, it's attached by strings to all the rest of them and they're all really attached to each other and they're permutations and combinations of each other. So thank you very much. I am having such a good time and we're halfway... Th- <laughs> I am. You know why? This is my favorite stuff to talk about. And we have enough time to talk about it. So if you're having a good time, go and have lunch for an hour. And then come back. We already voted on what we're doing after lunch.
May I be free from enmity and danger. May my parents, teachers, relatives, and friends. From enmity and danger. May I be free from mental suffering. May I be free from physical suffering. May I take care of myself happily. May my parents. Teachers, relatives, and friends, fellow Dharma Ferris, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all yogis in this compound be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all monks in this compound, novice monks, laymen and laywomen disciples, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they. Take care of themselves happily. May our donors of the four supports be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our guardian devas in this monastery, in this dwelling, in this compound, may the guardian devas be free from enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering, be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings, all breathing things, 
all creatures, all individuals, all personalities. May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. From enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. In the eastern direction, in the western direction, in the northern direction, in the southern direction, in the southeast direction, in the northwest direction. In the northeast direction, in the southwest direction, in the direction below, in the direction above. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals. All personalities. May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans. All those in the four woeful planes, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane in the entire universe. Whatever beings that move on Earth, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering 
and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move on water, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move in air, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering. Physical suffering. May I take care of myself happily. May my parents, teachers, relatives, and friends, fellow Dharma Ferris. From enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all yogis in this compound be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all monks in this compound, novice monks, laymen and laywomen disciples. From enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our donors of the four supports be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. 
May our guardian devas in this monastery, in this dwelling, in this compound, may the guardian devas be free from enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering, be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities, May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. From enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering, be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. In the eastern direction, in the western direction, in the northern direction, in the southern direction, in the southeast direction, in the northwest direction. In the northeast direction, in the southwest direction, in the direction below, in the direction above. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals. All personalities. May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans. All those in the four woeful planes, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May 
all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move on earth, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move on water, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move in air, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. from enmity and danger. May I be free from mental suffering. May I be free from physical suffering. May I take care of myself happily. May my parents teachers, relatives, and friends, fellow Dharma Ferris, be free from enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering, be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all yogis in this compound be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all monks in this compound, novice monks, laymen and laywomen disciples, 
from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our donors of the four supports be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our guardian devas in this monastery, in this dwelling, in this compound, may the guardian devas be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities. May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. Be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. In the eastern direction, in the western direction, in the northern direction, in the southern direction. The southeast direction, in the northwest direction, in the northeast direction, in the southwest direction, in the direction below, in the direction above. May all beings, all breathing things. All creatures, all individuals, all personalities, may all females, all males, 
All noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. Be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane, in the entire universe, whatever beings that move on Earth, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane, in the entire universe, whatever beings that move on water, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane, in the entire universe, whatever beings that move in air, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering. And danger. May I be free from enmity and danger. May I be free from mental suffering. May I be free from physical suffering. May I take care of myself happily.
May my parents, teachers, relatives, and friends, fellow Dharma Ferris, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all yogis in this compound be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all monks in this compound, novice monks, laymen and laywomen disciples, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our donors of the four supports be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our guardian devas in this monastery, in this dwelling, in this compound, may the guardian devas be free from enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering, be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities, May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained 
not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. In the eastern direction, in the western direction, in the northern direction, in the southern direction, in the southeast direction, in the northwest direction. In the northeast direction, in the southwest direction, in the direction below, in the direction above. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals. All personalities. May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities. In the four woeful planes, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. Whatever they have gained, not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane in the entire universe. Whatever beings that move on Earth, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. Whatever beings that move on water, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. Whatever beings that move in air, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger.
Can you hear what they're saying? A little bit. Well, I'd like to listen to it a little bit, but I need to tell you a piece of information before that, and this will be just good after it, because this is the information. Uh, If you're one of the people that went outside and walked up on these beautiful hills, anybody did that? Walked around on the hills up there? Okay, so I'm sorry I didn't tell you before you walked on the hills, there's a lot of ticks up there. So it would be a good idea if you went on that walk anywhere up on the hills to stand up now and check around your legs and dust yourself off and look. Before you dust yourself off, go around the back of the room and dust yourself (laughs) off. But now really do stand up and check your clothing and make sure you're all right. Um, Sometimes when we start retreats... uh, you're probably fine, by the way, but just look around. Sometimes at retreats, when uh, the retreat is just about to begin, or usually begins of an evening, people have just arrived and unpacked and had dinner and met some people and feel really good about starting. And they come in here and they gather here and they're sitting quietly. And here come in all the teachers sitting quietly and smiling. And then here come in the managers of the retreat. And they say, I'm just going to say a few words before the retreat starts. And they tell you, among other things, what difficulties could happen here. We have ticks. You have to watch out for the ticks. If you get a tick, come into the office. We have snakes. We have mountain lions. Um, And it's important to tell people about that. But I don't like leading with that. People have just flown here, sometimes thousands of miles, to get here. And it sounds all of a sudden like they took a really reckless path to come here. That this place, so it's not reckless, and it's all right. And no one has ever met a mountain lion in all my time here. I once thought I saw something sitting on the top, but who knows? Nobody has ever had an encounter with one. Nobody has ever been bitten by a snake. Have you? I saw a bobcat last night run across the parking lot. Really. That's exciting. Where? Here, down here? Yeah, right across the parking lot at like 7 p.m. Uh-huh. Going, anyway, were you excited? Huh? Did it, what, it looked like a big cat? No, it was a little bobcat. Uh. So. Were you frightened? No, I was in the car. Huh? I was in the car. Uh-huh. That's the nearest sighting I've ever heard about. That's great. <laughs> mostly, the, mostly the only animals we see are the turkeys. And the uh, and the deer, and we have a apropos of uh, kindness. We have a folklore of our own here, uh, having to do with the deer. Have you seen deer at all since you're here? They've been out grazing in the fields. Did you walk near them? They don't skitter. They, you come by them, and they continue to graze like cows. They don't know that they're deer. And our uh, our feeling, our decision, is that they are the children and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren of deer that have been here, that were here in 1990 when we first moved in, 1989. And there's never any loud noises here and nothing ever happens to frighten them. And no deer has ever met an untimely end here from anyone. And no one raises their voice, and it's pretty quiet here. And we think that the deer have become 
parents of a very trusting deer. They don't worry. They don't skid away. My friend Sally Armstrong lives across the road in Woodacre. And she says, when I open my back door into my backyard and they're a deer, they leap over the fence and they run away. So the Woodacre deer are not related to these deer here. (laughs) The Woodacre outside of here deer behave like normal deer. But here they have... They have, they have sanctuary, and it's rubbed off, and they're very relaxed deer. So I like to think that that's true with deer and people also. So I thought we'd listen just for a few minutes to a little bit of this, particularly because as um, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, I love listening to this woman singing that. So we'll listen to it a little bit till we pass at least one rendition of Upwards to the Skies and Downwards to the Depths. And then we'll sit quietly. We'll sit quietly for a little bit and then I'll suggest a meditation to add to it. May I be free from enmity and danger. May I be free from mental suffering. May I be free from physical suffering. May I take care of myself happily. May my parents, teachers, relatives and friends Fellow Dharma Ferris, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all yogis in this compound. Be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all monks in this compound, novice monks, laymen, and laywomen disciples. Be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our donors of the four supports from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our guardian devas, 
in this monastery, in this dwelling, in this compound. May the guardian devas be free from enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering, be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities. May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. Free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. In the eastern direction, in the western direction, in the northern direction, in the southern direction, in the southeast direction, in the northwest direction. In the northeast direction, in the southwest direction, in the direction below, in the direction above. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals. All personalities. May all females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans. All those in the four woeful planes, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. 
may whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move on earth, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move on water, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, as far down as the lowest plane. In the entire universe, whatever beings that move in air, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. Let's just sit a little bit with that echoing in our minds and in our hearts and our bodies. From the highest realms to the deepest depths, may every living thing thrive.
you can just sit quietly and feel yourself with each breath sending out intentions for goodwill, prayers for well-being, for all beings that live, for all beings everywhere. You can do that just with thoughts, this is my intention for all beings everywhere. And just breathe, feeling your own good heart as a blessing to the whole world. Or if you want, you may prefer to say the words, may all beings be safe. May all beings feel happy. May all beings feel strong. May all beings feel at ease. May all beings feel safe. And on and on. Just as a way of keeping your heart and mind alive. Blessing the air around us and the world around us. all the time being aware of how it feels in your own being to be connected with love, to beingness itself.
the particular blessing, may all beings be free of danger, may all beings have mental happiness, may all beings feel physical happiness, may all beings feel at ease. In my experience, it's the most soothing place for my mind to rest with ease about anything in its environment. The truth about all of us, though, is that we're startleable. And sometimes we startle when we think of some people or other people. So particularly for this part of today and for this exercise, we'll bring back to mind some of the lists of people that we thought about and greet people individually in our mind and see if we can help our minds stay unflappable, stay steady. I'll invite you to think of that group of dearly beloved people, your close kin, closest beloveds, that came into your mind first of all this morning. And invite them in now, one at a time. Them come in in your mind's eye if you can see them. That's great. If you can't see them visually in your mind's eye, imagine how they feel to you or look to you. And say a blessing to them. It doesn't have to be the formal blessing of safety and happiness and strength. Since you know them, you can bless them with whatever blessing you think they're most hoping for. You can take some care about the blessings. I'll be quiet while you do that. But I'll remind you that when people who are dear to you arrive into your mind, sometimes you get startled with how much you love them and how much you worry about them in this way and that way. And if there's any worrisome aspect of any relationship, be sure to think of yourself together in the blessing. May we thrive. May you and I both be really well. May we live harmoniously together. It's really important to remember how your own mind gets startled, both by how much you love somebody and want them to be a certain way, and how much you worry for them. I'll be quiet for a little while. You can greet your best beloveds in the space of your own mind with each particular own blessing.
keep your mind awake by opening your attention to yet another member of your family or your close beloveds. Invite in some friends, colleagues, people that you listed this morning as also dear to you. And wish them each a blessing. You can wish a special one or you can wish may you feel safe, may you feel happy, may you feel strong, may you live with ease. Particularly notice how pleasant it is, if it's your experience that you can wholeheartedly bless someone, how pleasant that experience of not being startled by someone in your mind is and being able thoroughly to wish them well. If you want to, Think of someone who, when you think about them, evokes a certain amount of uh, envy in you or jealousy. Someone that your heart is not so excited to express love and joy with. Take a deep breath and Wish well for yourself. Tell yourself what you wish you had, what you're yearning for in your life, what you hope will happen soon. Acknowledging how one feels, telling oneself the truth is a really important part of truthfulness and a balancer of the mind. Nothing hiding. I wish I had that too. Sometimes in the awareness, really unembellished by stories or hyperbole. I wish I had that too. Sometimes just thinking that allows the mind to say, well, I don't yet, I hope I do. 
and I wish you as well as I can, and I hope you enjoy your fortune now. Acknowledging your own distress. Otherwise, the distress itself blocks the mind from appreciating the good fortune of somebody else in this moment. We get startled by our own desires and then we don't see so clearly. If we saw clearly, we'd probably realize it's not my time. It happened this other way. It's not what's happening. When the mind feels jealous, it startles and it confuses itself. Wishing well for everyone unconfuses the mind. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. If you want to, whenever you want to, ever so gently think about someone Invite someone into your mind who, when you think about them, fear or negativity arises. They're probably both together. Some feeling of antipathy. Really don't like this person. See if you can just keep your mind steady. I really don't like this person. I really hope their causes don't thrive. But I'm not frightened of you. I'm not frightened. It's really all about having security in one's own heart its ability not to get frightened. Things happen, everything happens to everybody. But how to have a steadfast heart. Once again, think about wishing well in all directions to all beings. There are so many beings in our mind all around surrounding the people that we're frightened of and the people that we're jealous or envious of. There are so many other people. If we could wish with a boundless heart, may all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering. We could wish it.
And the making of the wish doesn't mean that it happens on the whole global scale. It means that it can happen in your own heart. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. When you want to, you can open your eyes. It's a very big neighborhood, the mind. So many people live there. People you even forgot live in the neighborhood or they come back what was your experience that you want to talk about Hello? Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, I have a few challenging family members, and when I brought them in, um, I really had to force myself, like, keep opening, keep opening, see that they could be happy. Just the possibility of it was a stretch for me. And then they came back in again towards the end, and it was much more obvious that they could be happy. Mm-hmm. So that was really a good lesson for me, that not to give up. I'm very glad that you shared that, especially because I, I, I think from listening to the lilt in your tone of voice as you told them that you felt successful about it and that really uh, what it is is our own minds not holding them stuck in that place um, and our own story loosening a little bit. By the way, how many people, um, um, what is it, um, um, resonated to the phrase, I have a few challenging relatives? <laughs> That's not, <laughs> not going to ask who doesn't have a few who doesn't have a few challenging relatives. I myself am challenging to me. Every once in a while. You know, when you think about it, in this practice, which some people practice for two days, as you are, and some people for six weeks on retreat, and some days, for, some people for a year. And although the, uh, the traditional practice is to think of uh, nearest and dearest, and almost nearest and dearest, a good friend, and then a neutral person of which we've already established there really aren't any neutral people. Well, Joe says there aren't any neutral people, but Joe has that heart. Uh, I think it mostly, I think it's true. There are no neutral people. When our, when my mind is screwed on right, there are no neutral people. Everybody is dear. When my mind is not paying attention, 
it automatically says, oh, look at that, that's great. Oh, nah, I don't like that. Oh, this one, yeah. Oh, this one, no. How many people have minds like that? Anybody has a mind like that? <laughs> I remember a story which suddenly came in my head, which I haven't remembered in many years. So I'll tell it to you, because as, as I'm thinking forward, and I think the, what's the moral of the story, it's the same moral. It's all the same moral. It's all Mohammed, and it's all the, the Irani medic. It's all the same story. At one point, um, in 19... 93, I was uh, one of the people invited to be at a conference in Dharamsala with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama meeting with Western teachers of Buddhism. So they were mostly um, Americans. Westerners doesn't mean from west of the Rockies. It means from west of Asia. (laughs) So they were mostly Americans and and British, and South Americans, but all English-speaking, so that uh, we could go to Dharamsala. Anyway, I went to Dharamsala. It's a, it's a long trip to go to Dharamsala. Uh, you fly uh, nine hours or ten hours to Frankfurt, and then you change planes, and you fly another eight and a half hours to Delhi. And... Uh, I flew with three other middle-aged women. It's a long flight, long flight. And then you get to Delhi, and we uh, spent the day in Delhi um, and then got on a night train going from Delhi up north to uh, uh, Kashmir, to the Punjab, actually. So we're going up to Patankot all night long in a, in a uh, in an Indian sleeping car, which is a whole other experience, also. So it's a long trip, and then you get off there, and you go in a four-hour taxi ride around what looks like the edges of the Sierras, but worse. You know, that taxi coming right close to the side of of the cliffs as you're driving around towards because you're high in the Himalayas by then and you finally come to Dharamsala so we stayed in Dharamsala and mostly uh, most of us were staying in a particular guest house in Dharamsala there were people staying in other places but this guest house had the largest um, living room assembly room so that uh, on the first night and the next day and getting ready to meet with His Holiness, all these 26 people came together in this room to plan when we have our three days with His Holiness, who's going to talk and what are going to be the topics and who will be the spokesperson and what will we say. And to start the whole thing, uh, my my friend and colleague, Jack Cornfield, was going to organize this, we'll all meet each other. So I sit down in this big room and people are starting to come in, and I start to see who all is has been invited to this conference and who all is coming. And as people come in, I watch that my mind is registering who's coming in. My mind says, "Oh, good! Look at so and so. Oh, good! Oh, I'm so I'm, oh, look at that! She's here too. Great!" And then, ah, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell you which. 
particular person, don't you think? But that happens. You're in a room full of people. Good, good, good. I wonder who that is. Ah! And so it happens, and there's like a couple of three people that my mind thinks, ah, because if I thought about it sometime before on some interchange in some meeting somewhere, that particular person had had an interchange with me or about me in front of other people where they hadn't said something flattering or they had said something unflattering or there's some reason why when I saw them, I didn't feel good about them. Oh, they're here. But here we all are, and we're at the, really at the end of the world. It's, I told you all those travels to let you know that at this point there's no going back. You're in Dharamsala for a week. That's it. And uh, with all the problems of eating different kinds of foods and taking care of yourself. My friend Jack said, uh, okay, we're going to go around the room now and every, because we don't all know each other. And we'll each introduce each other, ourselves. And I thought he might say, in a group like that, he'd say, I thought each of us would say what our name is and where we come from and what our principal teaching is. He didn't say that. He said, we'll each say what our name is and then we'll say, what is the biggest spiritual challenge facing you right now in your teaching and in your life? Then he said, I'll start, and we'll just go around the circle, so you don't even have to think about who goes next. We'll just go around the circle. I think, ah, that is some question. Yeah, I mean, I could not think of any question, even if he had said, we'll just now stand up and everybody will take off all their clothes. I wouldn't have been as distressed. (laughs) I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bottom line question. And I also thought to myself, there's no way out. I have to, there's no way out but forward. There's no way out but telling the truth. Didn't know what I was going to say. But, you know, the usual words, when you have to do that, you worry mine won't be as worthy or as this or as that. Anyway, I have no time to think about myself. And people started to say, and went around the circle, the biggest spiritual challenge in my life and in my work is... Nobody said, I don't have any challenges. I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Nobody said that. And everybody answered the question straightforwardly and directly what was happening with them, what the challenges were. And I was so moved that by all these strangers who were supposed, each of them probably worrying, am I going to be elevated enough to be with these other people at this special meeting? So people sharing and people sharing clearly, candidly, and amazingly, and with such presence and uh, transparency, this person shared that, oh, moved, and this person moved, and moved, and moved, and moved, and moved. And all of a sudden I realized that I'd accidentally been moved by two people that I formerly had thought, ugh, about. And that really was the point of the whole story. The third person, I also was moved about somebody said, ugh, because somebody really tells you what's true with them and what is their spiritual challenge, what is their, where their, where their edge is right now. And they're open with you and, and it, it, it's a certain amount of pain that they share and you fall in love with them about it. 
It's like I accidentally fell in love with these three people who before I would have thought, ah, ah, ah. So it's, again, it's a variation of a theme of if we saw people really, if we saw people without our stories, we would fall in love with all of them because everybody's story is complicated, everybody's story is hard, everybody's story is challenged. When I first heard the Noble Truths of the Buddha, life is... um, um, unsatisfactory. They didn't, they weren't saying suffering anymore, but the, life has suffering in it. And I thought, well, you know, some people more than other people. On a manifest level, that's really true. And on a manifest level, I am in the top one percent, half a percent, maybe, of people in the whole world on the level of where I live and how I live. I'm definitely not in pain about that. But mind suffering and heart suffering. Everybody's got. Everybody gets disappointed. Everybody gets separated from what they love. Everybody doesn't get what they love or they get it and they lose it. Whether it's their own health or their own body or the people that they're in, they're connected to. And starting from day one, we are all vulnerable to loss. Sometimes I see that so clearly. And when I do, I'm really... I'm really so easily kind. You know, if you go in a hospital and you go to visit somebody who's just come out of um, intensive care, or maybe they're still in intensive care, seven years ago, I was in France with my husband and he took suddenly quite ill. And he was in intensive care in the hospital there for three weeks and got well, he's actually here with us today, he's fine. Uh, but it wasn't so clear that he was going to be. And he was in intensive care. And you couldn't just visit in intensive care. Most hospitals, you can't just come any old time. They have certain visiting times. And the visiting time every day was at four o'clock in the afternoon. So starting at a quarter to four, people would start to congregate outside the doors to that ward, waiting to come in. And you start to go every afternoon at that time and you're waiting to go in. And you see every day, after a few days, you notice the same groups of people are there talking with each other in hushed tones. And sometimes a group of people aren't there anymore. And you notice they're not there, that group of people. And you don't know whether they're not there anymore because that person graduated into a regular room in the hospital and they're not in the intensive care anymore or whether that person died out of this life but they're not there anymore and you think about where are those people and what happened to their people and people when they talked talked in hushed tones you have the feeling of everybody knows this is a this is a fragile community everybody here has troubles Let's talk in harsh tones. We don't have to say to everybody, shh, you know, to do that, you're really careful. So I think that if we got it, that everybody, this is one big emergency room, this world. One big emergency room. And everybody is in a delicate condition, challenged. We would maybe lower our voices a little bit. It's a lot of talk now about civility and having lost civility. 
that it's an act of civility to lower your voice when people are in pain as a as an act of kindness to not add one more element to their already overstressed bodies or minds. And I think when we become kinder, that's an expression of woe. You have to be gentle with this. It's probably more macabre than I want to be. But I think sometimes of the generations and the generations and the generations of people forever and ever since the beginning of people who have been born and died and gotten buried or otherwise returned to the earth. I think this is one big emergency room, this planet, and one big cemetery that, uh, which isn't even across the street under the emergency room. But it's also the place that people get born into. It's also one big maternity ward as well. And from the time we met this morning until the time we leave this afternoon, a million babies will probably get born all over the world at the beginning end of that cycle. And to think also, you have to lower your voice. When you go into a baby nursery, you don't shout out. You get very quiet. You treat them very carefully. What if we treated people very carefully in the beginning and very carefully in the end and then it spread out and we taught that treated them very carefully in between from the beginning to the end. That would be a great thing. So when you did that that, um, experience of bringing people in all different kinds of people. What else happened to you? Yeah. You can say out loud, cause, or, or, there you go. Thank you. I'm Amanda, and um, something I recognized was with the difficult people, like people that I've tense up around and have difficulty with, um, because there's been some harm or something, I recognize that have, if they did feel safer and if they did feel happier and stronger and more at ease, that that would, kind, that would diminish the difficulty between us. Mm-hmm. So feeling that makes it a little more like palpable and a little easier to wish them those things because it's not coming from a place of like, well, I'm angry with you. Why would I wish you well? But more like it's useful for us to be well. Yes. And actually what you're pointing out is exactly the, the, the way in which um, contesting turns into compassion. And the awareness is if that person weren't hurting so much, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. And also the awareness that when I come back with anger towards them, I hurt myself. And it's really painful. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm, uh, I notice it a lot, particularly when I'm driving a car. Maybe I'm coming home from somewhere or another, and uh, I've been to a meeting, or uh, I've uh, of some group that I'm a part of, or I was visiting somebody, or something or other. But I'm. Coming home and I'm in my car driving along, everything all right. 
And then all of a sudden the thought arises in my mind about that day or about the day before. Somebody floats up into my mind. And all of a sudden I think, ah, that wasn't so nice of them to say that thing. And if I'm really alert, I'll notice that when I have that thought, ah, that wasn't nice of them, that my arms tense up. And instead of just driving, I'm like grasping the wheel. And sometimes if I don't catch it right away, then the dialogue goes on. They said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It wasn't so nice. Now, when I see them, day after tomorrow when we have the next meeting, I just won't be so pleasant with them. And they'll think to themselves, they'll think to themselves, I wonder what happened to Sylvia. She's really very pleasant. She didn't talk to me. Maybe I could ask her, did I say something? something? Then I could say, well, as a matter of fact, and then I catch myself, say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, that I, that if I suddenly had a headache, I wouldn't beat myself on the head worse to make it worse. You say, whoa, the, the, the coming up in the mind of, whoa, that wasn't so nice tomorrow. Ah, could stop right there. Just relax. Now, that doesn't mean never say anything to anybody. It means think it over. How will you say to that person when you're with them next? Listen. I, I, I'd love to talk to you about, I had some difficulty yesterday, I'd like to help, get some help from you about this. It doesn't mean not talking to people. It means not frightening them. Well, that was a terrible thing that you said yesterday. But wow, you know, I, I think you might like to know that afterwards I done it up. Or I could wait. I'm, you know, I, I really have recently, <laughs> recently I'm 82, it's about time. <laughs> With my family and my, my with my husband, my children, my grandchildren, with everybody. Anybody here doesn't get miffed? Anybody gets miffed with their children, their husband, their parents, their this, their that? It never happened to you. So you could say something. Or I could say to myself, you know what? If you don't say anything, you're going to forget that they said it. It's going to pass. You will have dodged a bullet. You will have not been in recorded time in somebody else's mind, a criticizer of them. And for the most part, if you don't say anything, the irritation that comes up in your mind goes away. It's amazing. It's like a dust storm or apple juice. All of a sudden, somebody says something or does something cavalier or this or that, and it's a dust storm. And you think, how could they say that? What kind of a grandchild? What kind of a son? What kind of a daughter? What kind of a husband? Why am I with this person? And that very thought, and that very thought is worse. The first of all, the initial is, ah, I don't like that. And then the second one is the commentary. How can I be with this person? So the initial thing and the commentary, which makes it twice as bad, much worse. Then you let it settle down and you realize, these are the people I love more than anything in the world. What am I thinking about? What's the matter with me? And you feel phew, if I feel phew. You ever do that and skip talking about it? It doesn't have to get talking about. People, well, what if you never say? <laughs> Most of the things that I feel I have to say something about right now, I said already 300,000 times. <laughs> and the 300,000 and first time is not going to make a difference, that's all. <laughs> That really, that you can absorb it, but you forget that because it's a moment of real, real bewilderment. 
It's like um, a dust storm in the desert where you can, suddenly can't see which way to go. And you sit down and cover yourself and wait till it passes, and then you take off the covering and you look around and say, oh, there are my friends over there. That's really what this is about. Wait. What else? One more thing about that. Oh, Babette. Uh, so in the meditation, when I was inviting everyone in and wishing them well, an experience I had was that um, the separateness between us diminished. <laughs> and we... Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know it also happens a lot in uh, or some in meditation retreats this is a, this is an example of it that everybody is sitting in quiet very quiet wonderful and all of a sudden somebody's cell phone starts to ring Oh, I didn't turn off mine today. It couldn't. Anyway, somebody's cell phone starts to ring. It happened a number of times that I've been teaching, but uh, but particularly one time that I remember, somebody had a ringtone that was a rooster. It said cockadoodle-doo, cockadoodle-doo. <laughs> Everybody's sitting quietly, and all of a sudden cockadoodle-doo, and when you. I, I say to the whole group, and then you, you hear rustling around as somebody is rummaging around in their purse or whatever to find it, and they turn it off. And then everybody settles back down. And then when we're finished sitting, I say, what happened to you when you heard the cell phone? And people first say, well, the first thing they say, I identified it's a cell phone, and I thought the first thing, uh-oh, I hope it's not mine. That's the first thing. Then the second thing, after you say, phew, it's not mine. Everybody said, yeah, I felt that also. Then they hear the rummaging around in that person. And then I said, how many people thought, I hope that that person who just rummaged around and turned off the phone does not feel embarrassed? Didn't you have that feeling? Like, didn't you have the feeling, I hope Romani doesn't feel bad? (laughs) Did you feel bad? (laughs) but everybody felt I hope Ramani doesn't feel bad before that because we put ourselves in the position of it were I and that happened I feel bad and we don't want other people to feel humiliated because we don't oh I don't mean to say felt humiliated (laughs) but we've been we have felt that we do all of these things because we say because we also have nervous systems that feel embarrassed or humiliated or frustrated or angry. And when people have those things, we know how that feels and we don't want other people to feel bad. Everybody, I'm sure, not everybody thought about it because maybe some people weren't here yesterday and didn't hear the bird. But a couple of times today when we were sitting really quietly, I noticed absence of bird. And I thought, oh, did anybody notice absence of bird? It's a pleasure absence of bird, you know. And, uh, and noticing, like, oh, no toothache, no backache. This is, a, this is a moment to say, 
you know, praise be, you know, that, uh, praise the day. And back to that cartoon that's back there. Another day, I got up. But if if we got up and we said, wow, look at that, praise the day. The sun came up in the right place. That's amazing. I saw it. That's amazing. I got out of bed, stood up. That's amazing. If I think to myself a lot about, uh, since I tend by personality to be borderline melancholy, that may surprise you because I'm, I'm, I'm easily funny. But I, I am. No, I do giggle a lot, and my father had a very keen wit, and I have a good sense of humor. But I really, you can check my people. I am borderline melancholy, a little bit bordering on James saying, okay, Adam, it's downhill all the way. <laughs> I easily think of everything that could have gone wrong from here on in. I'm not impressed with them. They lived happily ever after, because I don't think that happens. They lived happily ever after until they started with migraines and disagreements and child children with illnesses and problems of finances and all of that. That happens to people. You know, remember the, the that that um, book that I mentioned, Wherever You Go, There You Are, John Kabat-Zinn. He also wrote a book called um, Full Catastrophe Living, thank you very much, which is a line from Zorba the Greek. Which is a in which uh, Stephen, the hero of that book, says to Zorba, who has become his guru in a sense, "Zorba, are you married?" And Zorba says, "Of course, I'm married. I have the whole catastrophe: a wife, a house, or this or that." But that's it. And then the catastrophe is that you worry about all of them, and you love them, and you care about them, and things happen. I don't think I left out. I, yeah. Oh, Babette was in the middle of sharing when the horn went off. Go, Babette. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. So when when we were doing the meditation on uh, wishing all in the universe well, the experience that I had was the differences between all of those I um, invited in began to um, dissipate. And it was more like we were moving to become one. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I, I, I think that um, I, I love hearing that when people do that kind of work, it suddenly becomes so unnecessary for the mind to keep drawing lines. You have to stay on this side of this line. I don't like you. And you stay over here on this side of this line. I really don't like you. But you I really like super much so you can be here and you have to be there. You realize, you know, it's much easier not to remember which story goes with which person about how much I like or don't like them. Because I, I think about myself that I am sometimes... My own best beloved, I'm so pleased with myself and glad about something. And I am sometimes my own best friend when I'm supportive of myself and in a difficult time and I take good care of myself. And I am sometimes my, my difficult person when I'm not 
behaving the way I think I ought to be behaving or thinking that way when my mind is not screwed on straight whether I'm too tired or uh, too hungry or too overwhelmed or too whatever because everybody gets to be all of those things don't you play that role with yourself sometimes you're really pleased with yourself oh good and sometimes we talk to ourselves if we had a friend who stood behind us and walked behind us and said you know, you're not standing up really straight enough when you walk. And uh, you really should be holding your, your head up. You, you know, when you get old, you won't look up. Pick your shoulders back. What are you doing striding out like that? And you shouldn't have talked so much. You should have let Brahmani do more. And if I had a friend who stood behind me and told me all the time what I was doing wrong, I definitely would not continue to have him as a friend. I don't need that. You know, I, you know, I'd like to have a friend that stood behind me and said, Atta girl, you're doing great. Keep on. And we all could be that with ourselves. But every once in a while, we're not. We are our own storytellers about ourselves. Anybody here doesn't have stories about, I wish I were more this, more that, more this. Somebody, I can't remember what sage said, you can't be anybody else. You have to be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. So... <laughs> But it's a very good thing. You can't be other than yourself. That, you know, I couldn't be better, is what Gwen said, because she couldn't, and none of us could be. And now we will move for 20 minutes with Brahmani, and then we'll sit down. There's one more topic that we haven't talked about yet, and we'll talk about it then. Near enemies of Brahma Viharas. I said, stay tuned. <laughs> okay. Ah. So, some of us are getting up, taking care of business, right where you are. The way we began the walking meditation, we do some work in our chairs. But before we do that, we've been sitting, and I just love that. Let your body begin to fold and dangle forward. Because this helps to decompress the spine. You can go down as slowly as you like in the stages, which says, meet the moment fully. Meet yourself right where you are. It doesn't have to be different. You don't have to push it. You don't have to force it. I'm willing to meet this, this little tension. I'm willing to breathe, feel into it. Relax what I can. If space opens up and your body wants a little more, you can go there. But it is a, about being present with yourself, truthful with yourself, compassionate with where you are. With these bodies, these bodies that are always changing. You live a life, you feel that. Hmm. Just a few more breaths, and you scan around. So you take your awareness around, and it will show you where you can soften a little bit. You can let the breath deepen a little bit. You know, in the fully breathing, there's more relaxation. Great. You can let the head dangle and nod no. Oh, and yes. Good. And then just letting it grow heavy. 
And then when you release your hands, slide them up on your shins or around that area and lengthen your spine out a little bit. Nice. And then just let yourself rock a little bit, your hips to one side and your torso to the other. Oh, good. Mm. And the next time you come to the left side with your torso and your hips to the right, just press into your right hand a little bit so the right side of the ribs open a little bit. And then you can stretch the right arm and play in the space with the hand and the elbow and the shoulder and wriggle it around. Ah. And then just reach another moment. And as you inhale, bring it back to the center. Nice. And then go the other way. And this time you can gently press into the left hand. That'll let the side body open and or when you're ready, (laughs) stretch the left arm. And bring your breath into the stretch. Notice how the difference that makes for you. Hmm. So when you follow the breath and there's a way the body moves rhythmically with it, you know, we can't hurt ourselves. We can... We're being moved by the breath. Last breath with it. And then you bring it back to the center. Pause there for a moment. And then with soft knees, walk your hands up the legs. Let the spine be gently elongated. Bring yourself back up to standing. And just roll the shoulders a little bit. Inhaling up and back. You can let the arms get in that a little bit. Hmm. Good. And as we think we did this this morning or yesterday, interlace your fingers and stretch the arms back. Hmm. So on in the inhaling breath, reach out through the fingers. And as you exhale, just lift them up a little bit. Just go where your body goes. Don't force it or push it. Listen. Let it show you the edge. Hmm. The body wants more, you go a little further. Never alarming, never electrical, not sharp, right? Just right, like the three bears, just right. And then gently drop the chin and let the back of the neck stretch a little bit. You can rock the head just that side to side a little bit. And with the chin back to the center, press into the earth, lengthen the crown back up. Release the hands, gently shake them out. (sighs) Yeah. You can let the shaking go into the elbows, the shoulders. (sighs) Yeah. (sighs) Good job. Ah, and then you can take a seat. But this time when you sit, come towards the middle of your seat or so, so you really can just get a nice long spine. Hmm. Hmm. So grounded and long right there. And then just open your feet a little bit wider than hip width. 
And we did a little forward bend, but again, just a little tip of the pelvis. And then you just come forward. You can just start right on your elbows. Right? The spine is long there. Long breath. Mm. And then again, you just rock the pelvis a little length in the front body and hinge down a little more. If you want more, you can bring your hands between your legs and let your head just dangle down for a few breaths in that little forward fold. Hmm. Yeah. So the spine loves to be moved in all directions. Hmm. And then as it opens, if it wants a little more, the hands might go down further. You hold the feet. Uh, Take another breath or two there. And we learn patience, right? All the virtues that we were talking about. Anything you don't need, you can give away. (laughs) Generosity. And be truthful with yourself. If the moment feels pleasant, unpleasant, where there's tension or holding in the body or the mind. Last breath. And to release, easy ways, bring your hands on your knees, lengthen or gently roll it up. Pause in the center and feel what's happening. Just tell yourself what you're aware of. Hmm. And now bring your hands behind you on your chair. Roll the shoulders back a little. And then you slide the sacrum down, right? Press into your hands and lift the chest. A little bit of a back bend. So watch the head plopping back. Okay, so back bends happen mostly in the upper back, right? Sacrum down, then you lift the heart. The head, it stays in line with the neck, right? Gradually, you may be looking up towards the ceiling. And then if the neck feels really long, you can let it begin to plunk back a little bit. Open the mouth and stretch the tongue. Good. Then release the jaw. Last breath as you inhale, press into your hands and lift the chest. As you exhale, press it through. Good. To release it, press into your hands and roll the spine up. One vertebrae at a time. Head last. Hmm. Again, pause there. Back bends wake up a lot of energy. Typically, they're nourishing the kidneys and the adrenals, right? Okay. And so with your right hand on your chair, inhale, Actually, take your right hand on your left leg. That'll give you a little more stability. Inhale the left arm up. And just exhale, bring in a little side stretch. Keep both sitting bones and buttocks on the ground, on the chair. That'll keep you stable, right? The inhaling breath, the natural way the body bobs a little. Lengthen as you exhale, you ease in. And take your awareness to what you're feeling. Take your breath there. Good. One more breath. Ease in. And then to release, press into the earth through your feet and your sitting bones. Inhale up. Exhale it down. And take your left hand on your right leg. 
lift the right arm. And as you exhale, ease over. In the inhaling breath, there's a gentle lengthening. Good. And the exhale eases in. And then you feel into the breath. There's a natural way, as I said, the breath moves the body. It naturally eases and lengthens and comes out a little. And the exhale, there's more space to ease in. So you get moved by this natural phenomenon that's happening. And you come into relationship with the breath. And then let the heart open, roll up a little bit towards the heavens. And to release it, press down and inhale up and release it down. Pause again for a moment. And then a little twist, right? So take your right hand and just begin to hold the back of your chair. Trying to think how you like to do that. Great. And your left hand on the right leg. Okay. And notice how you're already turning with your head, everybody. Okay, so we're going to take the head less. We always lead with our head. <laughs> so we're going to lead right from our belly. Okay, so as you inhale, just lengthen up. And as you exhale, just let the belly begin to twist a little. That right hip might shift back a little bit. And then the inhale, again, the body naturally unwinds and lengthens a little bit. And then as you exhale, the belly and then the ribs rotate. Your right hand might move on that chair a little bit to ease you in. And breath by breath, it's like climbing up a spiral staircase. And the upper back, so the right shoulder rolls. And then finally, the head turns because the cervical spine turns last. And even the eyes can take you a little further so they can turn a little bit and you find a little focus. We call that a drishti, a focal point. And then let the breath grow long and silky smooth here. And feel its natural buoyancy and the way the body is moved with it. The way it unwinds a little and the exhale, it comes in a little. And as you meet a little tension... Bring your breath there in the most generous of ways to nourish, to heal, whatever might need to be given up or renounce. (laughs) And now everyone turn your head and look over your left shoulder. Great. Take a big breath in. And as you exhale, wring it out like a little mop. Like look left and wring it right. And to release it, release the back arm and slowly unwind. Pause in the center. Bring your pelvis to neutral and feel what's happening. Not unlike twists, um, back bends. Twists also bring a lot of energy, right? Hmm. And to prepare for the other side, take your left hand on the back of the chair and your right hand on the left leg. So you just kind of get it set up first. Keep the head in the center and as you inhale, you lengthen. And as you exhale, you begin right from the belly. You might even walk the left hip back a little. And then just breath by breath, feel the beautiful breath filling and naturally twisting in through the ribs. 
the natural way it unwinds a little and then moves in on the exhale because there's more space. How can we create more space inside of ourselves to simply experience this whole life? Hmm. Gradually the head turns last and the eyes follow. And you let yourself be there in the twist, be moved by the breath, feel the whole life, (laughs) the full catastrophe, (laughs) and all the blessings. We have these bodies, this blessed body to take us through this life. Hmm. And then please turn your head to look over the right shoulder. Take a big breath in and then wring it out. Look right and twist left. And to release, unwind the back arm. Untwist the body. Bring it to the center and shift back into your seat for a little bit. You feel your bottom relaxing on the chair. And your sacral area on the chair. If your back's on the chair, that's fine. But now, just feel what's happening inside in this body, in the breath, the quality of the breath. Perhaps the breath has begun to grow a little deeper as we move in the body and move with movement. And sometimes we work with the breath in a most natural way and sometimes we encourage the breath to grow deeper. It increases the capacity for breathing. So just now as you breathe, Inviting the breath to fill the belly. Just feel the breath, the belly rising and falling. Now it's not just the belly, but it expands to the sacral area. And then by and by you bring the breath a little bit more. Breathing the belly and then the ribs expand. You can feel them separate and fall back as you exhale. And then the belly softens. And by and by, it's not unusual. The breath can fill a little bit more, breathing the belly and the ribs, and it can sometimes fill all the way up to the collarbones. And then you release from the top, the collar all the way from the upper chest, the ribs and the belly falls back. So take a few three-part breath, we call a full yogic breath. Hmm. 
And now begin to find the rhythm of your breath. So as you inhale, just notice you can count it. One ohm, two ohm, three ohm. And see where your inhale goes to. It might go to somewhere between three and five. And at the top, pause and hold the breath. One count longer than your inhale was. And as you exhale, empty it fully. See if you can empty it one count longer than you held it. Let it pause for a moment. And then wait for the next breath to come in on its own. And do a few breaths like that, finding the rhythm on the inhale. Let the holding be one count longer. And let your exhale be one count longer than the holding. There might be a pause at the end until the next breath reveals itself. Last round. When you finish that round, allow any doing of breath to fall away. Let yourself be breathed. And feel where you are now, the blessing of this moment. And notice the effect of all of these little practices that you now have. All the teachings and the practices really are the path that keep bringing you home to your own good heart and a wakeful self. When you're ready, gently have the eyes open. Thank you very much.
One of the things that I'm finding at the end of um, two days of practice is even though we went home afterwards yesterday, we went home last night, we slept at home, we fed the dog, we fed the cat, we talked to our family, whatever we did, we occupied ourselves in a worldly way and we came back here, probably everybody drove this way, that way. And still, I feel quite remarkably settled down, as I might if I stayed on a residential retreat. Maybe different, but still, I think that it's a cumulative thing that's habituating the mind, because it isn't as if you wrestle the mind to the ground and it just relaxes and say, okay, I'm going to behave a little better. It's that one moment really informs the next and we get new habits of mind. And I see it in myself, the, the habit of mind to catch its balance as it's about to go down a path towards an unwholesome mind state earlier than it used to. Say, Don't do that. What are you doing? More than it used to and faster than it used to. And I think that's as Brahmani was saying, we just keep practicing and practicing. It's a little better and a little better. And we get wiser and wiser. Suzuki Roshi, who was the first Roshi of the San Francisco Zen Center, said that um, being in the Dharma, he said, is like um, walking around in San Francisco um, in the fog. He said, you walk around the fog a lot. You walk in the Without an umbrella, it's just foggy. And you walk around the fog, and you walk around the fog, and all of a sudden you realize, what? The same with Dharma. You walk around, and you hear Dharma, and you hear it, and you hear it sitting, and you hear it walking, and you hear it in the form of guided meditations, and you hear it through the body movement, and you hear it in poetry, and you hear it in sutras. And all of a sudden, awake. It's like, what? Hanging around in Dharma. Years ago, Sharon Salzberg, who was my good friend and was my first formal metta teacher in 1977, no, 77, 84, I think. 84 is when she went to Burma to study it with Upandita and came back and taught me in 75. So... Uh, uh, as uh, I, I'm a very fast turnaround on whatever I learn I, that's good I like to tell people right away and Sharon the same I think it's people who enjoy the, the act of teaching you want to tell somebody something that you know that's good and you teach it right away we were sitting and talking one day Sharon and I and I said uh, what do you think we're going to be doing Sharon when we're old women this is when we were not old women. And she said, I don't know, Sylvia. She said, probably we'll be sitting around praying for people. And I love that because what I like about it is that she made it sound so casual. She didn't say we'll be sitting. She said we'll be sitting around. That kind of had a leisurely look about it, like like uh, not to compare myself with the Kuan Yin out there, but the Kuan Yin out there is sitting in what's called a position of royal ease. You know, she's sitting like that. And I love that. It looks like the Kuan Yin is hanging around, wishing well, 
for everybody. She, you know, she's not. Yeah, this person is formal, formal. Even this, these other ones, they're all formal. Hanging around, praying for people, has a, a relaxed wet ring to it. You know, like like just doing it. I like that a lot. So we just be with each other a little bit longer. I wanted, because I wanted really to talk about everything that I knew formally about the Brahma Viharas, I wanted to talk about what are called the near enemies of these wonderful qualities of uh, impartial love, metta, and compassion, karuna, and uh, empathic joy, mudita, and um, equanimity, steadiness, the ability to see the larger picture and get a grip and see what's needed, upayaka. And it's said in the texts that each of these, those qualities has a near enemy. It looks like it, but it's not really it. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. So the near enemy, for instance, of metta, of um, uh, impartial loving, the near enemy is uh, possessiveness or desire. Um, if I'm really doing, if I, you know, I love you, but I love you exclusively and you have to love me back. It's love that requires something back. It's possessive. It has contingencies on it. It's not really the heartfelt metta. It's metta with a different intention. And the near enemy of compassion is pity. But that when we think about maybe maybe it's semantic, but I don't think so. I think when we pity someone, it's that they're over there and I'm over there, and it's a when we there's a certain amount of aversion and pity. That person in that terrible state, I pity them. That really is, has a little bit, I think, if you, you can try it out and see if it works in your mind, a little bit of aversion. Sometimes it comes with a story. If that person hadn't lived in a dissolute way, or if that person hadn't done this, or if that person had lived better, they wouldn't be in that situation, or if that person hadn't. But then there's still a difference between you and that person. And in the distance... That's not. We're not able to co- connect with heartfelt wishes for their well-being, which is what really wakes up our own heart. Because really, we can't rise up other people with our compassion, no matter how much we feel for them. If somebody is mortally wounded. Our compassion is not going to bring them to life, but it's going to wake us up to the fragility of life and the preciousness of life and how much I want not to destroy it in other people and to take care of people. It's our own heart that we're always building. It's not about sending metta. I'm happy nobody has said I can't send metta to this one or that one or that. It's not about sending. It's about using using the thought of all of these people to perfect my own heart's capacity. That's really what it's about. And it's not, I pity this person because always got a story in it. But, whoa, for whatever reason this person is homeless or uh, unemployed or unhappy or in some woeful state, 
I feel terrible for them because I can feel it would be terrible to be in a woeful state. May they feel better. May something rescue them from the woeful state. May they at least have comrades and people who comfort them. That's really compassion. To care. And the empathic joy, several people mentioned to me, I hope I've talked about it enough because people are surprised to find that it's hard just to be excited for other people. I was talking about publishing clear that Publishers Clearinghouse, every once in a while, they have a San Francisco lottery every year. And I think about buying a ticket because it's not the same as Publishers Clearinghouse. There's you know, literally probably 300 million people get the Publishers Clearinghouse. But not so many people buy a lottery ticket for that San Francisco $15 million house somewhere. Or if you don't want the house, you could have the $15 million so I, I haven't done it, bought the, bought the ticket yet, but I think to myself, I could buy a ticket. I wonder how much they cost. I never even found that out, but I said, I could buy a ticket because then what if I won? What would I do with $15 million? Well, I would give it away, of course, to people who, to worthy causes, right? In the New York Times, they have the, in New York's neediest every day, they have stories about people who need and they're wonderful stories about people who needed help and wonderful philanthropic organizations helped them and their lives turned around. They're wonderful. I would maybe find somebody there, some ways there to do it. But then I think, well, I would do that, really. I don't need anything. But before I do that, I would pay my children's mortgages. Just that. That's all. That's not a little bit, not $15 million. I don't need that. I just pay the mortgages from them. And then maybe I would just put something in the college fund for, but wait a minute, I think, you know, the the thinking goes on, $15 million, but my grandchildren are all finished with college, so they don't need a college fund. But maybe this, maybe that, but no, 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 really I'd give it all away. Really I don't buy the ticket because, you know, (laughs) you know, I don't need it. And somebody will get it and somebody will use it and I hope for good things. But the the heart always is open for things that it could want. We really, uh, the the Buddha said, desire is endless. And you you see it all the time. And I see it in myself all the time. A, a, um, a catalog comes for uh, a cruise somewhere, an ocean cruise. Not going to go on any ocean cruise. First of all, I mean, for the people who go, it's fantastic. Uh, but my husband gets very seasick. So ocean cruises are out of the question. But I think, well, I could just look at this and see other people's ocean cruises. Look at that. And then I see that this company with this ocean cruise, they also have river cruises. Nobody gets sick on a river. Now I could look at the river cruise. And I don't need to go anywhere. I, you know, I, I've been on cruises. I've been every place. I don't need to go. But here's this nice catalog came in the mail. Desire is endless. And it's not problematic to look at that stuff. But I watch myself. Is that really? It's actually a pleasure to think I don't need this. So the last one to think about is equanimity. And that steadiness. And equanimity is the steadiness that holds the mind clear enough so it doesn't choose wrong. And I'll tell you one more story. 
an old story. No, that's not old. I'll tell you how old it is. It's ten years old. It's um, the morning after election day in 2008 when Barack Obama got elected president. I was thrilled. I, you know, we may have different politics, but I was so excited. First of all, I liked his politics, but I also was thrilled that America had uh, had elected a person of color. And I thought, look, we're finally starting to make our way out of some of the bigotry in this country, and I, I was just thrilled. Everything about it, thrilled. Probably, and up all night watching all the. The, the speeches in Chicago and whatever. And the next morning was a Wednesday and I teach on Wednesday mornings. I came to Spirit Rock and I stopped and I bought all the morning newspapers. I had all the headlines and I came in with all the newspapers. You're not supposed to talk about politics or political bias here. But after that, I've been teaching that class for more than 20 years and they certainly know where my political sentiments are. And this is not the time to discuss, but I grew up in a family of new immigrants who all belonged to trade unions and I grew up with a politics that supported working class people and this is how I've always voted. And I have friends who vote other ways. I do, actually. Um, so on that morning in 2008, on Wednesday morning, I came to class with my newspapers and everybody, a big class full of people, and, you know, Buddhist classes, they all sit quietly. So somebody said, as we were just starting to have the morning, we're going to sit and meditate. Somebody said, could we just have a minute shouting and hooraying? So I said, yeah, I think we could have a minute of shouting and hooraying. Everybody shouted and hooraying. And then we sat, and then we talked, and we talked about all kinds of things. Talked about what's the Dharma, what, how things pick up the heart when your heart is picked up, how much hopes you have for the future. We, I, it was a Dharma morning, not a, not a post-election party. But then I ended, after I ended, I drove back home. And on the way home, I dropped into the Needlepoint store, where I had been a customer for many years. And I did over the course of a couple of decades, I did some enormous canvas needlepoints. Anybody knows what needlepoint is? So they're very, especially if you like to do big ones, they take a decade practically of doing. But I love that sort of stuff. And I did them on airplane flights and through years and years of whatever. And I had finished a big canvas some weeks before and I brought it to the store to have them send it away to get it framed so I could hang it on the wall where it hangs now and I got it I went I picked it up I looked at it it was great There's a, the woman who owns the store was there we exclaimed over it together she sold me lots of the yarn for it and uh, I was going out the door and she said do you want to buy materials for a new needlepoint I said, you know, not today, but maybe I'll be right back because, you know, I just feel so excited. I, I really feel like starting something new. I'm so excited about the election. Maybe I'll come back really soon and buy the stuff for a new thing. I'm just thrilled. And she said, you're thrilled? She said, you're thrilled? I'm hysterical. She said, I thought I was going to kill myself when it came out, the, when the results came out. I said, what? I said, what are you talking about? Kill yourself. She said, well, do you know 
about Mr. Obama and what his friends are and who he's connected to, this one and that one and that one. And I said, wait a minute, but who actually was, was Mr. McCain who was running it? Mr. McCain, do you know who his friends are? No, 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 no. And she said something else and I said something else. And uh, suddenly I realized, well, wait a minute, I'll be back. And I went out and I closed the door and I felt terrible about myself. I felt terrible. I got in the car, I thought I'll go back in, but I was humiliated. I couldn't even go back in. Because the operative word, she said, was I was so upset I thought I was going to kill myself. And I got so tied up in my political preferences and so overwhelmed with my exuberances that I had a political debate with her rather than saying, oh dear, I'm so sorry that you're upset. I hope I can be a comfort to you. I think it's going to be all right. I'm really sorry you were so upset. I really think it's going to be all right. Maybe on another day you'll want to talk about it, but I think it's going to be all right. No way should I have not responded to that. But I didn't. That My mind was too whizzed up. For whatever reason, I'd been up all night. I was celebrating with my class. I got in the car and I felt so humiliated and so bad for having done that, not being empathic to her distress. So all the way home, I was thinking about it. And I got home and I called the store. And nobody answered. And it rang and rang and rang and rang and rang and rang. And I thought to myself, you see, I made her so upset that she went home, she closed the store. She's gone home. I got an answering machine. And I said, listen, I, you know, this is Sylvia I just left. I'm so sorry. I should not have said that. That was terrible. I should have been responsive to your distress. I really wish I had. Listen, I have cousins who vote like you do. And really, I talk to them all. Really, I'm sorry about it. Everybody has different political views. I'm so sorry I was not responsive to you. And I hung up. And a little while later, she calls me back. She said, I got your message. Um... I also feel badly, she said. Uh, I was sorry I said what I said and let it get away from me. She said, uh, I said, really, I have cousins. We, I try to talk to them, but they're not open to talking. She said, I'm open to talking if you want to come another time. We could talk. Really, you know, I'm sorry about what I did. I'm sorry about what I did. And then we went on and uh, our life continued with needlepoint and whatever. And... Uh, Ultimately, the needlepoint store moved to another place. But, but I really learned from that that in the text it says the proximal cause of the near enemy of equanimity is exuberance. Your mind gets too whipped up and you're not seeing clearly. You know, I think I may have gotten that wrong. The proximal cause of uh, the near enemy of uh, 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 empathic joy is exuberance. You can get so joyful that you mess up. The proximal cause of uh, messing up equanimity, of of the near enemy of equanimity, is indifference. I told that to you last night. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. doesn't matter to me. And the proximal cause of the near enemy 
of um, of uh, empathic joy is exuberance. I didn't used to understand that. I thought, how could you be too exuberant? You know, something terrific happens. You get excited about it. I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled. I could be so thrilled I could do the wrong thing and not be attentive to that. Well, because I just messed that up and, and I am forever on... I am forever uh, in, in what, what do you call it, um, on this, uh, digitalized as messing up the causes of the near enemies. <laughs> because I did that, I want to tell you an example of being exuberant and not messing up. And that'll be my last story and then we'll read some poetry and then we'll go home. Uh, 31 years ago, 31 years ago in change, uh, my youngest daughter called me of an evening. I was getting ready to go to teach a retreat, um, a 10-day retreat. And um, she called and she said, this is Emmy. And she said, how would you like to take Johan and me out to dinner tonight? You and Dad like to take us out to dinner. I said, well, I'd like to take you out to dinner, sweetheart, really, of course. But I have to go teach tonight. I'm on for teaching. She said, uh, you really don't want to take us out to dinner? I said, no, no, I just said, I want to take you out to dinner. But I can't do it tonight because I have to go and teach right away. She said, are you sure you don't want to take us out to dinner? I said, no, no, I said I want, but I can't take you out to dinner. I need to go and teach she said, not even if you knew that you were celebrating that you're going to have a grandchild. And ah! I got so excited. Oh, I remember she had come into my, she had stopped by my house, walked into my bedroom, and we had this conversation. And I got so excited, I was jumping up and down, and the phone rang, and I answered it. In those days, you answered phones. And I picked it up. <laughs> And I said hello, and a very close friend of mine, my friend Alta, said hello, Sylvia. I said, I can't talk, I'm hysterical. And I put down the phone, <laughs> and I continued to be hysterical a little bit, and then I pulled it together, and we didn't go to dinner, and I went to teach. We must have gone to dinner soon after. So that's an example of exuberant, that I pulled it together, and I did what I was supposed to do. You can't not get exuberant if you get exuberant. But to know it and then see through it, it's finished with the exuberant. I used to think that if I meditated enough, I'd become kind of like oatmeal. You know, it's, <laughs> Nobody hates oatmeal, but nobody says, oh, oatmeal, wow. <laughs> nobody does that. It's just like kind of blah, nothing in oatmeal. But and I were and in the very beginning I worried that I'd become like oatmeal, you know, uh, whatever. But whatever is indifferent, and I'm not indifferent. I care passionately that the world should be better. I continue to insist that I think it will be, in spite of all the evidence <laughs> to the opposite. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. And really, I continue to be happier and happier to be saying to people, I think it's possible. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. I would like for us to read some poetry together because we have three, two poems 
that we have not yet read. Let's read Kindness. We'll read the poems. I'll tell you what, read the poem with the person next to you, and then we'll read it out loud. Two minutes. No, no, let's read it out loud. Let's do it this other way. Other way. Ready, set, go. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you can know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. No kindness as the deepest thing inside. You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it. Your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes any sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and buy bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. I love that. What's your favorite line? Okay, go ahead, Will. It has to do with uh, eating maize and chicken and staring out the window forever. What is the purpose of that? Well, I don't understand how that fits in with the rest of the poem. I think it's a metaphor for all of the journeying we do in our life because the line after it, uh, or before it, I'm not sure, thinking the bus will never stop, uh, the line that says... Stare out of the window forever. Wait, wait, wait. You could, you could see that this might be you. As someone who journeyed in the night with plans. You ever, did you ever sleep in a place? I did last week because I was up in Truckee overnight. Do you sleep in a place that's within earshot of a railroad? And then you hear the railroad train coming in to, the, to where there's a town. And it sounds its horn as it comes into the town. And you hear the, 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 mo- the moan or the sound of a train whistle coming and it whistles all the way through the town and then it goes out and then you hear it as it goes off into the night. And as it's whistling and going by and I'm in a snug warm bed somewhere, it's always been true to, for me that you think about who's in that train and where are they going in the night and where are they going from here to there? And what are they doing? And are they going to something they're looking forward to or getting away from something that they love and feeling bad about it? Who is driving that train? And how does he feel or she feel? It's always men who drive trains so far, I think. But maybe not. Maybe not. 
who's driving, how do they feel, do they feel this vastness of the night that I feel. When I teach in Garrison Institute, which I'll do again, actually, one more time this year in June, Brahmani will be with me. It's across the it's across the river, the Hudson River, from um, West Point, and all night long, trains are coming and going and coming and going, and I I'm not so sad as moved. There's something poignant of that train is full of people coming and going somewhere on their way with hopes and dreams. I think it's meant to mean we're all between here and there. And we all hope to get there. And you know how the mind is connected. It puts together everything that it ever remembers. I met a woman once in my very early days of being a clinical social worker. When I was still in training, one of the clients that I had in the clinic where I worked was a, an eight-year-old boy and his probably... 38-year-old mother or uh, an only child of this woman who had um, the child was an anxious child and the mother was an anxious woman and I remember talking to her without the child there one time in the beginning I guess to understand about her life and she said when I was a child I was in Czechoslovakia when the Nazis invaded and they took my mother and some neighbors kept me. And my mother said, I'll be back. And every night when I could hear the train go through, I thought to myself, maybe that's my mother coming back. And my mother never came back. And I thought, whatever thoughts I had had about this woman, she's too strict with this child, she's too anxious around this child, why doesn't she relax around the poor boy? He's picking up her anxiety. They completely changed me around. You know, how could she not be however she is? I'm telling the story now. That was, that was 1965. It's 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago. And it still makes me goose flesh when I talk about it. I remember how she looked when she was sitting in a chair across from me. And she said to me, I kept hearing the train whistle go through every night. And I thought maybe my mother was coming home. I think that's what this is meant to evoke. That when we get really aware of the coming and going nature of all of that life and how much we want to get there and we want our people to come home. We had a, a habit in our family that uh, because of the, uh, the how old my children were when when uh, the moon landings happened, that when they were driving long distances to go to across country to go to school or whatever, so a long time ago before texting, we'd have an understanding that they'd call when they got there, and the phone would ring and you couldn't see who was phoning in those days. You picked up the phone, and I would pick up the phone and say hello. And the voice would say, the eagle has landed. (laughs) What you want to know is that the eagle has landed all the time. That same son called me when uh, when my daughter-in-law went into labor with their first child. 
And I was down in Southern California, and he called me, and I picked up the phone. Someone, I was in teaching in a retreat center, and someone came and said, there's a phone call for you outside. And I went and I got the phone call, and I said, hello, it's Sylvia. And his voice said, if you want to see the next eagle land, you better get on a plane and come home now. <laughs> we, everybody wants to be there for the eagle landing on the moon safely. Let's read um, the last poem. I like this poem. I use it usually when I am teaching about your mind getting, how the mind gets stuck in some mindset, and it, and usually in a dislike or an annoyance or a grudge or something, and it can't let it go—a disagreeable thing. And I teach about the possibility of making the 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 space of the mind really big like if the whole cosmos is in the mind and then the event that's happening is not so tedious because it's in this whole amazing universe this is an example of expanding the mind into a bigger space you want me to read it to you I'll read it to you the book is called another the poem is called another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house by Billy Collins. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can hear him muffled under the music barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous Barking Dog solo that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> That's my favorite piece of Dharma poetry. Thank you very much for coming for this weekend. I loved it, and I hope you did too. Thank you, Brahm. Those people who are supposed to get CE units do not accidentally leave without signing out. You came and did it. Where are the people with the units? I'm so glad you chose this. Good. <laughs>